0: Welcome to the Film Seekers Podcast. Mainstream, art house, vintage, and documentaries. We bring news and reviews of big screen productions to your earbuds. We seek films. Now relax and enjoy the show. Show.
1: Hello, welcome to our fifth episode. Today's main feature film is Alejandro Hodorowsky's Santa Sangre. We'll also be filling you in with all the latest film and festival news, looking at the UK box office top 10, and a special interview with one of the UK's leading Steadicam operators. This is the Film Seekers Podcast. Hello. Number five. We've made it, Mike. Hello.
2: Hello. Thank
1: you. Those are the words of Michael Ross, who is my co-host for today. Thank you for joining us once again, Mike. Thank you for having me again. It's always a pleasure. I've got loads and loads to talk about. It's been a wee while once again before we've actually managed to put a podcast together. Yeah. Scheduling, life. all the other life. life
2: getting in the way of of passion, essentially <laughs> <laughs> blooming work,
1: work and illness. And I, I I featured on the first time watchers podcast last week and spoke about how a small child gave me man flu as it's known. <laughs>
2: but you bravely soldiered through it. I think did
1: did made it to the other side. I'm alive this side. um It was predicted that I may have some sort of contagious disease a la 28 days later uh yeah. turns children out children
2: of men this was the, you were patient zero
1: yeah and and wally from the first time watchers podcast offered to put me out of my misery uh which was very kind of him uh, but we made it through um, i'm here i'm alive um for your listening pleasure as is mike uh, just about just yeah. about we are raring to go today loads and loads to talk about obviously we spoke about Alejandro Hodorowski being our main feature film today. Really interesting film that we we've got lots and lots to say, and uh, such a surreal film as well, wouldn't you say? Mike? Yeah,
2: it, it's one that it'll be slightly odd to talk about because it's just a very odd film, but it's there's there's a lot going on there. So yeah, we'll we'll do our best, certainly.
1: Well, onto our film news as per usual. Uh, it's it's the same old. It's the same <laughs> old. We we take our top billing on our news with. Hollywood harassment once again and I'm not bored of talking of this I think there's plenty of mileage out of this unfortunately lots of mileage to talk about
2: yeah no it's one I've heard certain um, people talking about uh, fatigue with these stories and and sort of just them having less impact because oh it's this again but it it's still just as relevant it's still just as important someone else's tale of of abuse or harassment isn't lessened because it's the 10th one you've heard. If anything, that should just reinforce the importance of these stories breaking. You Absolutely.
1: Know. And the repercussions that that have on, on everyday life. And once again, I, I think it's a very strange thing, but we are conditioned to look to celebrity people in high status as, uh, idols in a way yes, uh, and, and how we should carry out our lives. I, I don't necessarily agree with that to an extent, but, you know, majority of people do look to people who are in in famous positions as, oh yeah, they're living their life in a certain way, and that's how everyone else in society perhaps should carry themselves out. They yeah. they are they are held up as role models, and that I mean that's that's undoubtable. Um, it, you know, from the sporting world, from the film world, from the music world, if you if you are famous and you in are, the public eye, in the public eye, if you're a well known quantity then you're, you're expected to act in a certain manner, and that's reflected across the whole of society. Would you would you not agree with yeah, that? Yeah, definitely. So a month has passed. A few more names on the, uh, the list. Uh, we have, to add to our uh, sadly ever-growing list, uh, John Lasseter, of all people. Now, John Lasseter is the head of Pixar. Yeah. He's bi- executive-produced every single Disney animated film that's out there, including the stuff that isn't made by Pixar. Yeah, because yeah,
2: uh, he went to he was disney went and formed pixar or helped to form pixar and then came back to disney with pixar's success
1: and he has come out of his own volition sort of admitted i need to take a break from my job of helming this this studio he he's a very respected figure from what i've understood from everyone everyone's interviews with him you know he's the person that has driven that juggernaut of Pixar um, studios to produce these great films, like all, all of the sort of all great of th- Pixar films that are films for children
2: yet have, have elevated that sort of art form of, of not just being a film for children, but also being great works of cinema.
1: And, and it, there's no doubt that John Lasseter's had a huge impact in nurturing uh, the themes and the, the ideas that come out of these great works of cinema and a lot
2: of the talent that has come through the studio with people like Brad Bird and and, and others. Sure.
1: And um, as I said, there's no doubt that Lasseter's had the, his imprint on Pixar and, and pushing that forward as a as a giant sort of money-making machine for Disney as well. And so it's interesting to, to hear that he's come out and said, I have issues with myself and yeah. I need to take a break to kind of figure out what's going on.
2: Yeah, It's it's one where I... i'm I'm not sure it's it's definitely commendable that he has. he has come out and and sort of said this it's is he was he attempting to get ahead of a story you know was was there something coming that has prompted this or has he just seen the sort of the revelations that we've seen across the industry and and looked at his own behavior and thought right is there something i'm doing that's incorrect because if so then that's like I say, it, that's commendable. It's, uh, there's been others that have come out and, and apologised publicly and people have been saying, oh, that's how you do it. You know, that's how you sort of admit your mm. culpability and mm-hmm. stuff. But it's after the story has already broke. So it, it can be seen as, as damage control sure. or, or damage limitation. The
1: horse has already bolted. E-
2: exactly. Whereas with this, if, if it's off of the back of him, then I think that's definite progress
1: it's really difficult to say what the motive was for him to send this memo to all of his studio uh, which you know from the memo I I was reading it he is certainly passionate about leading his team you know as a leader he sees himself in in a position of authority and once again role modelling behaviour for the rest of his organisation and he mentioned on there hugs that may have been deemed as inappropriate I don't that's such a weird thing to mention in a an email, you know whether you're questioning whether a hug is appropriate or invading someone's personal space i mean how far do these things go and you know where where is the line for inappropriateness surely you know mike if you would to say to me neil i don't want you to touch me uh, i don't like being hugged so don't <laughs> yeah. hug me and then i go and hug you then sure that's me crossing the line there because you know but surely so- social conventions have they gone that far to say hugs are no longer acceptable well, it, can you not hug anyone it's anymore? one of
2: the interesting things is i i saw a article recently that was uh it asked uh both men and women uh from i believe it was from 18 up to 65 or 70 what constitutes sexual harassment uh yes or no answer for these certain things so there was uh making you know, inappropriate jokes, sexual jokes. There was telling someone that they commenting on someone's attractiveness. There was physical, uh, sort of attention in the form of, of hugs, things like that. And so it was quite interesting to see there were certain things that everyone agreed on. So, uh, inappropriate jokes, things like that. Everyone agreed that that counts as sexual harassment, but then commenting on someone's attractiveness, for example, uh, with younger people that was quite often seen as sexual harassment, but as the people got older, that was viewed as not. And and so it's one where it, it can also depend on how it's done context wise. You know, if you, if you tell a woman that she looks nice,
0: mm-hmm.
2: I, depending on how it's done, that can be, or if you're constantly referencing, you're an attractive person or you're a beautiful person, then you're sort of defining them by that characteristic. Whereas one is a compliment the other is a form of harassment. It's it, it's It's a very complicated and complex
1: I love subject. The, I love the jumper you've got on um. today, Mike. Now,
2: <laughs> Thank if,
1: you. if I did that repeatedly for the rest of this podcast, <laughs> I, I
2: might become slightly uncomfortable sure. and feel no, just an example. Yeah. yeah. No. No. Yeah. Exactly. It, it, yeah. It's it's a very interesting subject, and and it's one that I think where this news is breaking now we are seeing opinion evolve on on it okay. sort of live in in real time um where possibly a lot of people wouldn't have thought something was harassment before they are now reevaluating that
1: okay and,
2: uh- and so i also think it also depends on relationship mm-hmm. so saying to a friend for example talking about them looking nice is one thing saying it to
1: an employee is perhaps another but uh, that, that's surely social convention whereby you don't know a stranger maybe or you know it's professionalism where yeah. where you perhaps have a better rapport with friends and you know that perhaps uh lines can be crossed where they you know where you have a familial sort of contact yeah, with Yeah there a are there are less rules there are less regulations
2: yeah. you know there are no regulations sort of of how you interact with your friends mm. whereas there are in businesses of how you should be acting or reacting to people that either work for you or work with you or are your bosses,
1: you know. Mm. And and so, you know, John Laster is not the only person that's had this leveled at him we kind of teed this up in the last (laughs) podcast interestingly i mentioned a film that was coming out called uh, i love you daddy which you hadn't heard of mike no uh which i obviously have heard of now yeah Um, Um, and so do you want to just give the one-liner on uh, what the film is
2: lewis ck's film uh Which is about his daughter coming to live with him, played by Chloe Grace Moretz, and her starting a relationship with a much older man, played by John Malkovich.
1: And immediately, uh, you know, I'm already bristling at the, the thought <laughs> it of this. makes you
2: slightly uncomfortable. Very yeah. much
1: so. But when the roles are reversed, and, and this has gone through the Hollywood convention, where young starlets are being paired up with much older men, that's been going on for eons, you know. Yeah, I, I think
2: this is uh, an extreme example of that, but okay. it's, it's not alone. In, yeah. You know, it's, I, I mentioned a, a story about Maggie Gyllenhaal yeah. being told that she was too old to play Jeff Bridges' love interest when there's <laughs> ridiculous. a ridiculous at least 30, 40 year gap between yeah. the two of them. Um, and so, yeah, it, it, the, the paradigm is, is there of older man with younger woman and that not being viewed that harshly, perhaps, where I think. We are seeing a bit of a sea change, and and people are looking at that more critically and, and being like, "Well, wait, why is why are you saying that's okay?" That, especially with someone of Chloe Grace, she's not long out of her teenage years, if not still a teenager.
1: Yeah, I I think that perhaps Chloe Grace Merets has the a misfortune of growing up in on, in, on screen in a public eye yes. Yeah. Yeah. so where we've seen her as a as a child in films like hugo and 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 the kick-ass, kick-ass ass as as the teenage very young teen sidekick and now having to play a role where she's not, there's no in uh, by the way there's no sort of uh intent there that she's being forced to do this no, I mean, no. you know she has chosen to do this role by by all intents and purposes. But just to see her go into something more adult, maybe this is the sort of twenty-year-old uh, rebellion, you know, where we've seen it from stars that ch- you know try and shift that focus from when they were a child star and actually take me as a real actor. We've yeah, seen view it with me
2: as an adult.
1: Look, we've seen it with Kristen Stewart. Kristen Stewart, yeah, Anne, uh, Hathaway Anne
2: Hathaway had a similar thing where she was in a lot of Disney films and then suddenly switched and was in a lot more adult
1: fare. Let's talk about. Daniel Radcliffe come on he's a contemporary example yeah. whereby he has gone way out there I, I've just picked up a blu-ray from the, on my pile just to show Mike and that was of a film called Imperium which came out last year where Daniel Radcliffe plays uh, an undercover cop who becomes a neon uh, neon a, ne- a neon Nazi. I'd love to watch a film about neon Nazis. Neon that would be amazing. Blinding, mate. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so uh, he plays a neo-Nazi who goes undercover, uh, and then he's done things like Swiss Army Man. But it, it, there it was just...
2: the the stage play where he was famously nude for. Oh yeah, was, of course, it, Equus. It was, yeah, yeah, one of the f- sort of first things where he was challenging that view of him as Harry Potter. Mm.
1: And and we we quite often see that as we said, you know, from young stars now going into transitioning into adulthood and taking on these much media which i think they should be able to do that you know there definitely. shouldn't be anything wrong with them going i'm not a child anymore i'm an adult i'm a serious actor take me for who i am and my ability to to do that
2: yeah and you they they need to address that public image as, as something like that can definitely hang around it even goes into not just film stars there's musicians so miley cyrus being another example of someone who recently has made that shift to being more adult owning her sexuality things like that which is important Mm. for you when you are a young adult you know especially i can only imagine when you have grown up in the public eye that that must be intensified because you have all these people who view you a certain way and yet you yourself your self-image is is entirely different from that, and so you want to make the two sort of line up more. Absolutely, um, and, um, and so yeah, I I, I do recognise that and and sort of applaud it, mm-hmm. but at the same time, it it just makes certain roles seem even odder.
1: Very much so, and so Louis C.K. has been one of these people that has been called out on his behaviour. Apparently a lot of people knew about it and it was only a matter of time before um it would come out of, of of the of the woodwork and he has apologized profusely um he has said that uh that the acts that he's committed in mostly acts of control over women he was he was doing things in front of women that would make them wait, make me make anyone feel <laughs> yeah. uncomfortable um, Horribly sexual things in front of other people as a, as a means of control and a means of dominance, dominance and and, and, exerting power. power. Yeah. yeah. Um, and for all of his act and all of his shtick, he seemed like quite the anti-person. Yeah, he
2: he seemed his his views seemed quite progressive, mm. and and he seemed like a not exactly a champion of, but but someone who believed in sort of the ideals of say feminism or sort of uh, the the more modern world that we live in whereas these acts are equivalent to some of the stuff that harvey weinstein was doing um that is just is horrible sort of there was the he, he mentioned that you know he always asked right if if you know before doing it but when there's that power imbalance the the it, it sort of negates that of, of they can't say, no, I don't want you to do this, or they are in less of a position to sort of say that than in say normal life.
1: I, I was watching an interview with, uh, and, and Annette Benning, uh, who was being interviewed by Andrew Marr on, on one of these press junkets. And the question around, uh, sexual allegations was posed to yeah. her. And I was quite disappointed if I'm honest with you. She, shouldered the whole situation off saying it happens in everyday life you know whether you're a lawyer whether you're working in the post office and to an extent she is right but when you're in a position of power like harvey weinstein louis ck and this is a point my girlfriend brought up so i can't take any credit for it whatsoever it's all come from her those people can take six months 12 months off work they can afford to go and take that time off they can then afford to pay for counseling and, and expense free and all the rest of it um and then you don't get from their point of view they can just say oh yeah well i i got some help and now i'm fine and now i can be br- brought back into the fold yeah there's no real course to kind of say oh i i, I went and worked with uh women's groups i i you know i worked intensely with uh, people who have been abused or people you know i've tried to make good and try to understand it's just like i went talk to a counselor i talked to a shrink i talked to someone who is supposed to be independent and you know very objective about these things and that will completely cancel out any of my poor behavior i I just find that's incredibly weird from the perspective of celebrity and you know they have once again they have the 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 monetary ability to be able to take all that time off work and go yeah well i've always got a job to go back to because of who i am it's it's just rather sad and it's just that doesn't uh, for, for the point she was making saying it happens in every yeah sure it happens in everyday life uh and everything else but i would say that the the, the survivors of this sort of behavior don't have the same recourse and the ability to take time off work to yeah. then afford to be able to, to have a counselor and you know they are essentially being punished for the actions of someone else
2: victim shame or victim blame or you know it's 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 not their fault at all. It is the fault of the aggressor, the the person perpetrating the act, um, and that is something that should be sort of acknowledged. And yeah, it, it happens in every every walk of life. That's not an excuse for it, though. Like racism happens in every walk of life. It's still something that we should be fighting
1: against and trying to better and trying to correct. So, so if I interject at this point, an, a, another. Case in point that, once again, my girlfriend has brought up um, and, once again, cannot take credit for this at all. Mark Wahlberg, earlier on in his career, are you aware of something that he did? No. So the the story, the gist is that he beat the living hell out of a young Vietnamese guy in in an attack, I believe, was racially motivated. So Mark Wahlberg was quite young at the time, running with whatever gangs, Marky Mark and the Funky Bunch. Ran with <laughs> and the, the
2: dangerous street gang of Marky Mark and the Funky Bunch, or, yeah.
1: or maybe the new kids on the block themselves. <laughs> um, so, um, he yeah, pretty much blinded this poor chap, uh, through utter violence. Yeah. Um, went away, got help, got therapy, got slap on the wrist, or whatever it was. Uh, this Vietnamese chap who's lost sight in his eye and had this must be looking at Mark Wahlberg now, you know, you weren't aware of it, yeah. Going, oh, he's in tra- in all these big films, and no one seems to give a damn about what he did, what he actually did yeah. in a, in, a, in a, and that and then that goes to my point. Uh, I was going to bring up about redemption, and you know where where are the points of redemption, and how how much, where can you redeem yourself, and you know what levels of redemption are there? Do you know? Is it all about just. I went to go and get help and now everything's A-OK. Yeah. Or am I truly sorry? Am I working with advocacy groups? And this is once again, a thing that my girlfriend brought up is like, are they talking to Vietnamese groups and saying, look, I did a terrible thing. I want to understand what your, where your community comes from. Can I work together with you? Can I put some good back into your community for all the bad things that I've, I've done? Yeah. But no, it seems like things like this just get swept, swept under, under, the the car- yeah. under the car.
2: Yeah. It, it, it it's a very tricky subject because obviously redemption and, and sort of, it, it should be the goal. It's You know, we mentioned previously that as long as you are trying to better yourself, you should be able to, you know, you should be allowed to make mistakes. It's, if I look back at the person I was when I was, you know, 16, 17, I kind of, I loathe that person. He was, I, I thought I knew everything I, I You know, I don't agree with a lot of the opinions that I had then. I was very, say, anti-religion and I would get into, I would gladly get into debates and arguments with people about how all religion was, you know, opiate for the masses. You were a mini
1: Richard Dawkins. You know,
2: but... But as you grow, you are supposed to change your opinions and change your views and and I think that's through life you know? experience, isn't it? Exactly. It's, it's it's I now I I you know not to focus solely on religion, but I used to identify as an atheist. I would now classify myself as an agnostic. You should be able to change and grow as a person. But but when an act is that terrible well, where's, and, where, and there is no sort of acknowledgement of it where or, do you draw
1: that line though mike yeah
2: you don't if it's not if, if say he spoke about it if this was something that was talked about and oh you know I did this when I was younger, but I now, like you say, I I work with these groups. I work with, uh, you know, I have anger management courses regularly, or I am trying to put something back into the community for the people I was targeting, or even, you know, I'm working with others who have the same problem, Mm. you know, that sort of, it, it doesn't negate, but it helps to repair some of the damage done. But like you say, this is not something that's spoken about. It no, is absolutely kind of swept not. under the rug. And, and that makes it harder to sort of see the the redemption.
1: And I think that the talk show hosts play a large part in being sycophantic about this sort of thing. You look at people like Jimmy Kimmel. Fallon. Fallon. Uh, Corden. The prime example in the UK would be Graham Norton. Oh, just invite them on. Don't ask challenging questions of them. Yeah. Don't tackle the important stuff. So if we have Johnny Depp sat on our couch sipping away at something, want to talk to him about, oh yeah, what 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 went on with you and Amber Heard? Yeah, Do you want to yeah. clear the air about that? No, let's just... Talk. I know you're talk there. About to,
2: Pirates of the Caribbean, Caribbean seventy
1: five. Oh, talk about some funny thing that happened to you when you were seventeen, yeah. and, and sort of gloss over that. And I think there needs to be more scope for more challenging interviews. People should not be scared to challenge these people. These people are not. They are celebrities, but they're not untouchable, as yeah. we've seen. And um, they do. These people do commit horrific acts as human beings do, but they seem to get away with it because they live in this fame bubble where it's like, can't talk to them about that. Can't, can't, you know, but if you're, if you're in the public eye, I think you should be held to account for these sort of things. And Johnny Depp's a prime example in the sense that no one's ever openly challenged on him on these things because fear of being blacklisted by whatever studio, I know you're there to promote your film and everything else, but I think in equal part, because you're there on the publicity trail, you should be able to face a fair amount of, challenging questions from yeah. interviewers and i just don't seem to get that especially from the talk show host where most people see these these people on you know graham norton yeah. is a prime example of that and I, I detest that for those things so yeah john Lasseter, louis ck jeffrey tambor another three names big, to, names, big names being
2: there. added to the uh, as you say ever-growing list of of people that have done horrific things, but are finally being sort of made to pay for them, which is all, all, all for the better. Mm. And, and I hope, you know, more names come out. It's some uh, You know, I, I love Jeffrey Tambor as an actor, mm-hmm. but that doesn't excuse what he's done. And, and so I, I hope that more names are added to this list of basically anyone that is doing this should be getting called out. I would like to see more like Lassiter who are ahead of the story right. and are, are just going, look, I've heard about this. I recognise that some of my behaviour is wrong, so I am doing something about it. This, you know, it shouldn't be the the people who have suffered having to come forwards and bring it to public light. Those who are guilty of it should. I mean, yeah, I'm not seeing that's going to happen. I can't
1: see that happening. I think the fact that the balls already started rolling, people are already panicking and going, "Well, might as well get it out there now, get just to minimise damage limitation," yeah. as you said earlier. I would love to have listeners' voices on this. So if you've got anything you want to add to this story, and it's a, I'm no doubt we're going to be talking about it on the next podcast, sadly. It, it seems likely, yeah. Um, if you want to add anything to the story, you can email us hello at filmseekers.com, drop us a tweet at filmseekers, or you can contact us or join the group on Facebook. That is facebook.com forward slash filmseekers. That's enough on Hollywood harassment for one day. Now, on to more film news smoking. Mike, you're a dirty smoker.
2: Dirty, dirty, filthy smoker. Yeah, and proud. Well, maybe <laughs> proud not the France right term, probably, but no. committed. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to see this through to the cancerous end Rush. that surely awaits me.
1: Mike won't be on the podcast for much longer.
2: Um, you but, can hear it in my voice already.
1: <laughs> um, French politicians have been kicking up a fuss this week uh, with regards to the portrayal of smoking on film. Uh, I mean,
2: if any any cinema is sort of quite complicit in the the glamorization of of smoking on film. I think French cinema is
1: is certainly it. Well, this is uh, from the French socialist senator Nadine Grillet-Seteney and uh, she had a big debate in in the French parliament uh, regarding the depiction of smoking in movies. She wants it gone completely and she says that by France continuing this tradition of always having a, a cigarette within film is just constantly promoting the ta- tobacco industry uh, amongst uh, French society. What are your thoughts and feelings on this, Mike?
2: It's it's a tricky one because I, I I do understand that argument. Like I say, I I used the phrase glamorization of smoking um, because it does have that. At least with sort of some films, it has that element of. Cool, like it, it's one that I've always rejected the idea that smoking makes you look cool. I don't think that is true at all. Okay. However, I do think smoke itself looks cool on screen,
1: as in so, the act of the, smoke the, wafting, not,
2: yes. And not even the act of smoking, but the physical manifestation of what happens when you smoke which is smoke right you you know it it, it's one that it's why it was in a lot of film noir and stuff it's quite expressionistic or impressionistic i'm not quite sure but yeah i get that it it, the 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 movement of light through smoke is quite a a sort of a fascinating image it's it's quite captivating and so it's one that i understand the the sort of the draw of it if you'll pardon the pun (laughs) um while also acknowledging that the act that is linked to it is bad. But there are people that smoke. And so I don't think a blanket ban is something that should be called for because you're then you're therefore you're censoring real life.
1: Aren't we at a point where we've talked about uh, people dealing with sexual interactions with each other and how we should address people? Aren't we now on to the next stage where we should be sort of eradicating these things whereby we know they're bad for us, we know they're going to give us cancer and we're not stopping people doing it, but perhaps stopping other people from taking it up by looking at film as a glamorization of that act. I, I agree. There, I do like the look of smoke on screen. I love classic films. So like films like Jean-Luc Godard's uh, A de Souffle, which was remade as Breathless with uh, yeah. Richard Gere. That's the protagonist in that constantly smokes at the beginning he he, he's he's got a cigarette dangling from the bottom of his lip and he's just taking a nice draw and then just constantly throughout the film and it 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 does give that air of cool about this character there's a
2: slightly fetishistic element to it absolutely
1: and when when you when you see someone drawing from a cigarette and then just the what we call the crackle crackle and the 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 cherry the the end of it sort of lighting up looks beautiful if i'm honest with you it does you know regardless of how vile repugnant whatever we want to call the act of smoking is on screen as, as a visual image it, as you said it looks great and but the thing is with french films i just think it's so imbued into the whole of french cinema you know you see a a frenchman excuse now excuse me now so frenchman with i've uh, a breton shirt on <laughs> yeah. you know smoking a cigarette and And it seems like a cliche, but I've watched so many French films recently and it's just constant, constant smoking with several characters. And they're set in modern day France as well. So we're not just looking back at 50s, 60s French films where characters often did smoke. The attitudes were different then, yeah. Yeah, Yeah. And it's a difficult one because how can you take an act like that uh, and, and, and take it away from something that's seen as cultural uh, you know, it's almost like smoking is a part of French cinema yeah. and, and it's a very much a cultural element of that. I can't think of any other acts that are perhaps as harmful as that, that we have sort of shied away from. Maybe alcohol to an extent. And
2: alcohol was the example I was going to use. It's it's one that it's possibly as my, I have a bias as a smoker, mm. but the acceptance of alcohol and alcohol abuse, yet the rejection of tobacco abuse seems quite hypocritical to me. In that the cost to the NHS, say f- related to alcohol, mm. is far more than the cost related to smoking. Because with smoking, it is harmful to you, okay, and 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 Other to the people around you. Yeah. If you're smoking in confined spaces, things sure. like that. Alcohol, it is harmful to you then there's the acts of violence that are done while people are drunk there's the acts of uh injury mishap sure. that happen because people are drunk there is you know there is there is a lot more relating to that and yet it's fine to advertise beer beer you can't advertise smoking it's fine to have someone drinking on screen yet you can't you're apparently you know they don't want to have people smoking on screen uh, if, and and so it it speaks to a it's the sort of the cultural bias that there are more people that drink. I sure. think. And, and so it it's sort of, it's viewed less harshly when it perhaps shouldn't be because it is just
1: as harmful. Well, if we look at obviously film has a, a very long history with tobacco and alcohol, yeah. you know, I, I just think back to Westerns quite often where you have characters chewing a big cigar yeah um drinking whiskey shots straight from the sort of oh, bottles yeah. yeah
2: from the xx jug of you know, moonshine and yeah, stuff well,
1: these are images that we, we we've always been brought up with you know how it may not have made me as a child go oh give me a cigarette or you know i i, I want a shot of whiskey but it's yeah. something like oh that looks cool and you know yeah, that's yeah. that's what the the bad guy does and you know not necessarily that it's a bad thing but you know there's something to oh he's, the, the good guys taking a shot of whiskey at the same time because he's tough and hard and
2: yeah I, the example i would use is, is film noir mm. where you have these hard drinking constantly smoking sort of detectives detectives yeah. slightly anti-heroic but yet they are the ones that you know you're supposed to identify with and and they do have again this element of of cool of of daring and that that can sort of glamorize it again it, it's it's a tricky one in that i am quite a personal responsibility i i think is quite important i you know i'm i am against censorship for the sort of safety of of you know i yeah i don't think you should necessarily ban all people from smoking on film because someone might start smoking i i think but you sure. have to place the responsibility on that
1: person of course but only if that person is able to take responsibility for themselves so you think about vulnerable groups you think about uh children yeah adolescents where their their, their minds aren't fully formed they aren't able to take responsibility for themselves but i would say
2: that you don't see many kids films that feature smoking for that very I'm reason to, i'm trying to think of one there. yeah I, I i struggle too well
1: we we were brought up on warner brothers cartoons where you would uh, occasionally have bugs bunny chewing on a carrot much like yeah. a a cigar or we would have people like Yosemite Sam I'm sure he, he had a he
2: ha- would have a little sm- cigar in Elmer the Fudd. Of his mouth uh, quite often I think tom and jerry
1: yeah. featured smoking and, and violence and, and lots of <laughs> other things but yeah. um you know but they, they 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 take those elements of society such as the alcohol and the tobacco and, and take it to the extreme and it almost becomes a bit normalized now we 've taken i say we've the the industry's taken great steps to sort of prevent certain groups such as children yeah. uh, from being uh, marketed to uh, those sort of effects so we don't, we see less of those cartoons for example, you know yeah. those cartoons. I can't remember the last time I saw one of those. Well, yeah, I,
2: I think they even, they possibly predate us.
1: If you think about Tom and Jerry yeah, and, yeah, they and do, those like things, they were sort of 50s, before our 60s, times, yeah. yet
2: still available. If I think back to the the stuff that was being made when I was a child, mm. again, I don't think there was much of that sort of stuff you You certainly
1: saw some when you were a child as well oh oh i'm sure
2: but it was it was it was already sort of
1: less okay maybe um. i'm just really old it was everywhere (laughs) when i was younger so you know even you know 20 30 years on from when it was made you know that was the kind of diet of cartoons that i was fed the BBFC, which is the British Board for Film Classification in the UK, has taken some really strident steps to prevent smoking on screen in contrast to what we've been talking about in France at the moment. So there will be no, I believe, no alcohol advertising for any screens under the age of 18 and that's been in place yeah. for quite a while now and there used to be a projectionist mic and there used to be a, a sign in the projection booth saying make sure you don't play any reels, adverts uh, which contain alcohol into under I think it was was it under 18 or was it under 15? I yeah.
2: think under 18, under 18 but I'm
1: not 100% and now the BBFC also don't have any adverts for tobacco products at all so I think tobacco advertising has been com- pretty much mostly phased out completely out of the UK you don't see any billboards there's no advert for smoking in print media um online i don't think i've ever seen No it.
2: i'm i'm fairly certain it is it is illegal in the UK to to advertise cigarettes at this point
1: but alcohol we see those adverts on the television for uh, whatever beverage of choice that you you like to to drink um and they are in 15 rated films i still see that um 18 rated it just brings yeah. up an interesting point as like you said, the two contrasts and the damage that alcohol causes versus smoking. Alcohol, obviously, alcoholism is has been well documented. I think the depiction of alcohol on screen more often than not depicts the negative connotations of alcoholism. For a large part. Yeah. There are certain amounts where like, oh, we have a drink, we have a party, we have a great time, or it loosens this character up, yeah, or, yeah. you know, they become more able to assert themselves on the screen. But for the most part, they get drunk, they commit an act that they perhaps regret, and then they look back on that act throughout the film. Yeah. In, I, in large
2: part. I mean, I think it, it that's relating more specifically to alcoholism. Okay. Whereas just alcohol. Just casual so drinking. Yeah. And, and obviously that is a, an important distinction to be made. The odd drink here or there is not going to do you that much damage, where regular abuse of this substance will you know the the same is kind of true of cigarettes. Yeah. If you're a regular smoker, it's going to be more harmful.
1: But I think that perhaps our, uh, tobacco versus alcohol is more of an, a, an addictive quantity than, than Yes, uh, certainly. Yeah. 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 So that's perhaps where the, the, that's why it's viewed in a in a different light. Interesting subject. We could debate that one all night. <laughs> uh but we won't. So uh on-screen smoking is going to become a thing uh, in French parliaments, not really a thing over here. Uh films are rated depending on its de- depiction of smoking in the UK so you won't get children's films where characters um, smoke uh, or even a family films where characters smoke uh, where it doesn't uh, go over the negative connotations of that smoke Um, there's no casual sort of drinking either so yeah I
2: think the the BBFC has already put in the work Mm -hmm. to to sort of guard against this where perhaps that hasn't been done in French cinema
1: yeah absolutely maybe they could take a a leaf out of uh, the BBFC's work that's our news over for today. So we just want to catch up on a bit of festival news and as we're in this sort of final run towards the award season and obviously we're going to be talking an awful lot about film awards uh, with the SAGs coming up, the Golden Globes, and obviously. Yeah,
2: that, that whole sort of procession, the, the train really sort of gets chugging and absolutely. starts going. So. Yeah.
1: So, you know, everything's done its rounds at all the major festivals and now we're sort of in that final run towards uh, the, the main goal which people seem to think are the Oscars. Yeah, um, <laughs> Festivals are still going on at the moment. Uh, we've got the Indie Spirit Awards, which came by not too long ago. And there have been some interesting nominations for that. If we look at the best feature, "Call Me by Your Name" is in there, uh, which um, I thoroughly enjoyed, and we spoke about at length in the last podcast. Yeah, the Florida Project, uh, which is the film from Sean Baker, who did Tangerine a couple of years ago, the fam- uh,
2: famously filmed on an iPhone,
1: an iPhone with some adaptations. <laughs> yes, yeah, it's,
2: it's not just your your run of the mill. It had a special anamorphic lens designed for the very sort of nature of, of filming a feature film
1: yeah and that starred uh amongst other people william defoe as a motel manager and it's all to do with these little hotels that are outside the international drive in florida where disneyland is yeah and these motels actually are inhabited by people who don't have an awful lot of money who could never afford to go to disney world or disneyland and and have an enjoyable time there these children that are you know encompassed in in these very small ghettos almost. yeah it's,
2: it's it's low income sort of areas within sight of the quote happiest place on earth you know and the sort of the disparity there
1: and it's, it's been a difficult film for a lot of audience to get behind because it doesn't necessarily indeed to a narrative it's sort of follows along a couple of people but it's it's not your straight narrative beginning middle end yeah um it just follows the lives of people and Um, the
2: the characters are perhaps harder to identify with than your your more mainstream fare where people have to be likable yeah you know it's yeah. it sort of they're more allowed to be real people
1: yeah absolutely and, and a large part of this follows the um children in this and and obviously the language that children use uh, and the interactions that children use it can be quite difficult if obviously we're adults now you yeah. know we're not, not used to that <laughs> sort of thing my dad went to go and see it um i I've, I've thought he might absolutely hate it but he loved it uh, and he came out of it going oh I wasn't sure where it was going at the start but I went with it and I found it was such an interesting and the young girl in it in particular Brooklyn Prince yeah. who is the one of the main the lead. leads uh, in in the film he he thought she gave a fantastic performance mm. so that's another one for the best feature for the uh, independent spirit awards nominations the get out that's from Jordan Peele the yes. uh, the, the swedo horror satire uh, centering around african americans in uh, modern day america and how they interact within society with within a wider context of being uh, part of a mixed race relationship
2: yeah there's it also deals with cultural appropriation mm-hmm. And and other sort of issues around race that are very relevant in today's society, did so very intelligently as well,
1: and, I think. And it's interesting to see that in the list because often films that are released early part of the year are, are forgotten about when these sort of things roll around. Or,
2: or things that have horror connotations so there's, there's a debate, I, I think it is a horror film personally, but that you know often horror films are neglected when it comes to awards
1: yeah and it's good to see that one in there lady bird now it's one i'm itching to see it's not out yeah, here same. until february this is a film directed by greta gerwig her first directorial film uh with saoirse ronan in the uh, lead for that one but a little bit autobiographical from what i understand i, I believe so but and she's struggling fictionalized fictionalized certainly. one struggling act actor trying to get work in in the ever increasing demands of la's uh, acting world and then the rider which i haven't heard anything about that's the no, final it's not one one on i'm there. aware of so um one that we'll both have to catch up with at some point the best first feature on there, columbus i haven't heard of that one unfortunately
2: uh that is one that i have heard of okay uh, due, due to uh s- podcast the in session film guys covered it brilliantly okay um, and it's about uh a certain uh, city, I think it's Columbus, Ohio, okay. uh, and it's the uh, architectural wonders of the place. Uh, there's a, a two people meet, one who is uh, back to deal with, uh, I believe, an ailing family member, an ailing parent. Uh, yet he 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 doesn't want to be there and and meets someone who sort of changes his opinion about the place and and sort of some of the things going on in his life at that time
1: okay and then we've got ingrid goes west which is the stalkerish single white female sort of vibe about it but updated for the modern day with things like instagram social media where people can be traced back to their origins through their digital footprint
2: yeah and and the sort of the idealized versions people present of themselves on social media that might not actually tally up with who they really are
1: interesting Minash is uh another one that's down for best first feature one i haven't heard of mike nope, no shaking no, your head not. um oh lucy once again <laughs> off my radar no, oh no. lucy <laughs>
2: If they're on this list, they clearly need to be on our radar, sure. and, and we will try to correct that. But
1: and Patty Cakes rounds off the, fi- the best first feature, which we are both aware of, is a, yeah. an aspiring uh, young white rapper, uh, a woman ra- rapper um, who lives in a perhaps a very poor background yeah. in America, and she manages to break free in the sort of X Factory sort of mould where yeah, she gets
2: sort of the the dreams of stardom and you know uh, recognition of the talent. From uh, an unusual source,
1: and we're not going to go through the entire list, but just to round off here uh, for the International uh, Spirit Awards, uh, the best directors are down, Sean Baker, the Florida Project we've just mentioned, uh, Jonas Capadignio, Carpagnino Carpag- Carp- Car- Car- uh, Yeah, and no, I uh,
2: apologize. The <laughs> film is
1: the film is Assiambra. Uh, once again should probably be on a list that we need to watch um luca Guadagnino, uh call me by your name jordan peele get out uh the Safti brothers yeah the Safti brothers which uh <laughs> they're, it's a thing now yeah it is definitely a thing now I, I joked about this earlier on in the year but they are a thing now and they're a brilliant deservedly so sorry, from the, what i hear yeah, yeah it's, they it's are not
2: a, one i've caught myself a, yet good but time very is, eager
1: good times this film about uh, two brothers uh, one of the Safdie brothers who directs the film plays uh, one of the brothers who has some sort of uh, learning difficulties and he's heavily influenced by his brother they're, they're two hustlers that go around robbing trying to make a better world for themselves very Of Mice and Men sort of vibe yeah. to it sort of a George and Lenny dynamic between the two brothers one brother is played by Benny Safdie and the other brother is played by Robert Pattinson Yet, yeah, continuing his great
2: run of of picking very interesting and unusual projects Projects.
1: and completely believable as this sort of hard wearing Brooklynite. Um so that is good timers there with the Safety Brothers as best director. And finally uh the Rider crops up once again, uh Chloe Zhao. Uh so, yeah clearly we we, should, we, need, we should, need to become aware we need of this. to watch this one. So that's In Independent Spirit Awards. And just to round off our festival and awards uh news for the week, the Biffa Awards That's not the bin collection company as they're known as in the UK. Uh, The British Independent Film Awards, uh, they'll be held on the 10th of December on the Sunday there. And they have their awards list online at the moment. We will be going into that in a little bit more detail on the next podcast. But if you want to catch up on all the nominees for that, and there are some interesting picks on there that you won't see anywhere else on any other awards seasons because they are British and they perhaps have, haven't have been talked about as much uh, in, in a wider context where it's dominated. They have a more limited release. Sure. Or... And you often find that... Um, american films certainly dominate those award seasons and and there are some absolute gems that have been released out in uh, the british uh, film industry this year uh, lady macbeth i can think of the top of my
2: head god's own country it's one we've mentioned many times but i think it deserves it because it's it's such an amazing film
1: it's a brilliant film getting a bit of a re-release just before the award ceremony as well and then finally also i'm not a witch which albeit not a British film in the traditional sense, but has a British director of uh, Nigerian descent. And Uh, is
2: part British co-funded and it it has its roots here in as much as it's set in a different country and is very much about that other country. Yeah,
1: so lots and lots of great British films to get your head around uh, before the Biffa Awards. So have a look on the website, biffa.film forward slash awards to see the full list. We'll be back after these messages. Hi,
2: everyone. This is Tim Costa.
1: I'm Hermano da Silva. And this is Walter Vinci.
2: And together we are the First Time Watchers podcast. Each week we choose a movie to review that none of us has seen. Watch it together. And then discuss. These movies could be new. Or old. Or on our list of shame. You can find us on iTunes by searching for the First Time Watchers podcast. As well as on Stitcher.
1: And we love interacting with our listeners. So if you have any suggestions, send us a tweet.
2: An email. Or post to our Facebook page.
1: We'd love to hear from you.
2: That's right, I mean, it's all about interaction. And talk about what we love movies. And you don't have to worry about us going
3: on and on about this and that and the other and all. Oh, no, 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 let's no. talk stop, about stop, this minutely. Shut, up shut, here. Up, shut, up, shut, up, shut up, shut up, shut up, shut up. God damn it, shut, shut, up. shut
1: up. up. I think that's enough. A couple of guys there, well, three of them, in fact Walter, Tim, and Hermano, the first time watchers. First time watch this podcast, which I appeared on last week, Mike.
2: Yeah, brilliantly so, I thought.
1: I was very ill and full of snot and all the other horrible things associated with uh, flu, um, but made it through and we were talking about the killing of a sacred deer, which I believe is on your list to watch, Mike.
2: Yes, I haven't had a chance yet, but it's it's one I'm very interested in.
1: Yeah, we went into it, not, not hugely in depth, but we certainly covered a mountain. I came out of it, you know, pretty positively i don't think it's his best work but listen to the podcast you'll find out our the full skinny on that one as to what we exactly thought in the final grade that we gave Uh, an excellent podcast for you to all get your ears around and that's the first time watchers guys there it is about that time to do this
0: the uk box office top 10 countdown
1: indeed it is the box office top 10 countdown. So we have the latest box office figures for the week. And starting at number 10, it is Jigsaw. It's still holding on there. It's like almost a month after Halloween and much more than a month since it came out. I believe it came out you know two weeks prior to Halloween. Is there, Michael? What do you think about Jigsaw?
2: Um, it's not one that I've seen yet. I'll, I'll be honest, I wasn't really that bothered about before starting to hear some reviews and some uh, reviewers that I quite respect had uh, more positive things to say about it than I thought they would given that it's a sequel to the Saw films which are already, you know, eight films into the <laughs> sort of sequel factory as it were. But but from what I've heard, it it sort of does justice by fans of the originals Whilst also doing something a bit new with it,
1: number nine. It is the Florida Project from Sean Baker. We just spoke about this one. Good to see it in there. I didn't think it would actually get into the top ten, but yeah, it's doing quite some a limited business. Limited release, very limited release. Uh, it's it's doing some business from 107 different locations across the UK. It's taken in a, a, enough of a haul just to squeeze it into the top ten. Number eight, the death of Stalin. This has had a bit of a run, to be honest with you. I didn't think it would hold itself, you know, being a a satire from someone like Armando Iannucci, who is still a bit of an unknown quantity across the UK and the world, but it's resonating with an audience. Um, There's not enough overt satire and certainly was a difficult subject like Stalin uh, as a dictator and we live in these times now where um, dictators are certainly falling if you look at stuff in uh, Zimbabwe at the moment. This is taking a a bit of a comedic spin at it but doesn't I believe doesn't shy away from the the horrors of living under a dictatorship. So number eight, that is The Death of Stalin.
2: Number seven.
1: Film stars don't die in Liverpool. How much do I love this film? (laughs) How much have I gone on about it? Just a beautiful film about matinee idols falling from grace. And uh, we have a wee bit of a clip from this one, so I'll tee it up for you. The story revolves around a relationship between a younger man and an older woman, an older woman being Annette Benning playing the fading starlet Gloria Graham. And they meet up for the first time acting on some sort of play around Primrose Hill in London. And their first interaction is sharing a house. So they've all rented a room in this house while they're, while they're acting in whatever various plays that they are in, in, in and around the area of London. And uh, this, is, this is how they first meet. So it's quite a nice little clip.
0: Hey, you're the next door guy, right?
3: Which makes you the girl next door. <laughs>
0: hey, have you seen the movie Saturday Night Fever?
3: Uh,
1: yeah, I've seen it. Actually, I have. Sort of three times.
0: Oh, so you like disco dancing?
1: Oh, God. Um, well, I like drunk dancing.
0: Oh, so if I make you a drink and you come into my room and hustle with me, I need a partner for my dance class.
1: I mean, if you fix me a drink, I'll come in and clean your bathroom. <laughs> you can hear the music sort of fading in there, and that leads to a wonderful sequence between the two characters as they meet for the first time and does an awful lot of the work that you perhaps need a, an awful lot of scenes to, to get across this relationship that's forming between the two of them. And it's just a beautiful story and I, I won't spoil it too much, but they don't go and see Saturday Night Fever. <laughs> um, Mike, after me going on and on and on about this film, are you anyway interested in, in, in finding this one?
2: Oh, oh, definitely. It's, it's one that um, it's not on at my local cinema, which is my typical recourse to, to catching films in the cinema. If it was, I, I would have watched it by now um, as it is, I'm very keen to watch and will be trying to catch, say, when it releases to uh, viewing on demand.
1: Number six. It is A Bad Moms Christmas. Now, I, I watch A bad, uh, Bad Moms, the first film, only a few weeks ago just to see what all the fuss was about because people held it in high esteem. They said it was quite funny. There's yeah. a, there's a joke about, um, uh, is it Al Pacino's, Al Pacino's cruising, cruising? Yeah. Uh, which seems really out of place. I, I, was, I, I got the joke in there, uh, cause, uh, cruising is about gay men driving around looking for intimate interactions with each other. And it just seems really bizarre to see it in this very broad comedy. I don't think it really does many favours but perhaps once again this is a a voice we've mentioned it before a voice that's not heard of you know mothers that are not catered for by commercial audiences
2: yeah i mean even just um women being allowed to behave badly is is not something that is typical in films and so should be sort of
1: applauded and and this time the bad moms have all found their place in the world and what do all great great sequels do introduce the parents and that's uh i think there's a couple of great actresses in there and the names are escaping uh, me. susan
2: sarandon is one of is them, one of the others for, for sure uh, and the other two were ones whose names i didn't instantly recognize but you're no when device. i saw them yeah. yeah it was it was sort of instant
1: but it's, it's doing the biz you know it's it's there it's been there for three weeks and um it's still at loads and loads of cinemas 424 locations across the uk at number six number five Thor Ragnarok, the third film in the Thor franchise. I struggled there to get that one out. What a tongue twister. Um, 17th film in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Mike, have you caught up with this one yet? Yeah,
2: it's, it's one I saw. I very much enjoyed. Um, I recognise that there are flaws in it and that uh, it follows the the same sort of narrative structures as, as many of the others do. But uh, Taika Waititi's... Bizarre sense of humour permeates it, and, and entirely worked for me. It's a. I heard a reviewer talking about it who said uh, New Zealand comedy, but specifically Taika Waititi's comedy comes from vulnerability, okay. and so it's a side of Thor that you haven't seen before. It's him being vulnerable, and that's something that did really work for me.
1: Yeah, and tonally, it's a massive shift from the the previous film in this instalment, uh, The Dark World, which lived up to its name, The Dark World. took <laughs> it took itself very seriously yeah. into it. Um, but some great characters in there. Um, you have one of the Valhalla... Uh, the Valkyrie. Valkyrie, beg your yeah. pardon. Oh, I think her
2: name is Valkyrie, Okay, character name. Um, uh, played by Tessa Thompson, brilliantly.
1: B- brilliant actress. Um, good to see that sort of going into the script. And also Taika Waititi as a cameo role as a certain character in the yeah, film. As Korg. Korg is his name. A-, yeah. a rock monster, looks a bit like the Thing from The Fantastic <laughs> yes, Four. Yes, yeah, not dissimilar. No, so um, Thor doing very well at number five. Number four. Daddy's home too. This kind of follows the same trajectory as Bad Moms 2. You know, one for the mums, one, yeah, for, one the dad. for the dads. Yeah. Once again, formulaic as ever, you're fed up of the two central characters. Let's bring in the parents. Yeah. The two fathers in the form of Mel Gibson, who's a bit of a curmudgeon, and I can imagine that. Um, <laughs> and he's the father of Mark, uh, Mark Walker Warburg character. Story. And Will Ferrell, who is the more jokey sort of slap-about character, his dad is played by... John Lithgow. The,
2: the amazing John Lithgow.
1: Who looks really like he's having such great fun on the posters. Like, yeah. You know, he's got his arm around Will Ferrell's chest and he's giving him, like, noogies or something. Yeah. It just, that would be the thing that would get me into this film. He
2: he looks, from the few clips I've seen, he looks to be having a whale of a time. Um,
1: But it's not enough for me to go and watch it. No.
2: It, it also, we have to, you know, uh, we've spoken about... Uh, Artists with uh, troubled pasts, and mm. and whether you can separate them from that. Mel Gibson is a. Well,
1: there's two of them in this tricky
2: film. one. Wow, well, yes. Also, um, as we were talking earlier about Mark Wahlberg. Wahlberg, yeah. Um, so yeah, it's it's one that's definitely uh, marred by that for me.
1: Number three, Murder on the Orient Express, and this is from director Kenneth Branner, who also. Sings the theme tune, writes the theme tune. (laughs) He is the star Poirot as the detective investigator who uh, is investigating a murder aboard a train. All-star cast, you know, Daisy Ridley's in there. Uh, Dame Dame Judi Dench, Dench.
2: Michelle Pfeiffer.
1: Uh, It has this really weird CGI sort of feel to it. This film has done brilliantly for a slightly older audience, people who perhaps grew up on Agatha Christie's novels, uh, certainly the Poirot thing. I couldn't get my head around Kenneth Branagh's ridiculous moustache it just <laughs> looked comedic it took away that yeah. slightly serious element. Distracting. Very distracting um, it kind of reminded me of the Polar Express in some places as well <laughs> uh, which isn't a great thing. No it's want... not something you want. No but this is apparently starting a cinematic universe it has been announced in the day. <laughs> yeah I know you're pulling a your face Michael. Yeah
2: it's not great on, on a podcast I know but that, that's news to me and, and doesn't really make any sense.
1: It was teed up at the end of this film that the there was a death uh, once Poirot solves the case sorry he does always solve <laughs> the case in these things yeah that's not a spoiler no well this one tees up the death of the Nile at the end of it and uh, apparently that's already going into pre-production. Okay. So that will be the next one in the Poirot cinematic universe. <laughs> Maybe they might do some uh, Miss Marple as well and sort of integrate <laughs> some of those stories. Yeah. And have Marple and Poirot and eventually they'll meet yeah. and form the, a super troop, The Agatha
2: Christie sort of cinematic
1: universe. universe yeah. It yeah, that would have been great, wouldn't it? Um, and then have a sort of Avengers ensemble piece <laughs> at some point. Uh, Murder on the Orient Express there at number three.
3: Number two.
1: Paddington, Paddington number two. Lots of twos today. Yeah, many sequels out at the moment. Loads and loads of sequels. Paddington, I have a real soft spot for. The first film actually caught me by surprise in the similar way that the Lego film did. I didn't think it would do an awful lot, the first Paddington, but just Ben Wishaw embodying that character of Paddington, bringing him to life. Really it worked for me. Um, he had the same tone that I'd expect Paddington to have from reading Michael Bond's books as a child. He he did exactly what was in my head when I was reading those books. If that's if that makes any sense whatsoever, yeah. and just the, the the cast itself. And it's such a good-natured film. It's great to see that they don't go for lowest common denominator sort of humour. It's all very family-based, but it's still really really enjoyable. Have you seen the first Paddington film, Mike?
2: Uh, yeah, it's it's one that unfortunately I. I didn't catch it in the cinemas. I, okay. I, I didn't actually catch up with it until about a year later, okay. which worked quite well in that it is sort of a Christmas film. Mm. Um, and so I caught up with it at uh, uh, Christmas later. But it really surprised me. It's I, I had no expectations. I didn't. I wasn't interested in the film sure. until people I know told me it was good, and and I watched it. And there is just something very moving and and heartwarming about it there's something also quite quintessentially british i think Mm. it it manages to capture that britishness without quite veering into the sort of oh it's horrible weather and everyone drinks tea (laughs) you know sort of cliche even though they acknowledge that (laughs) you know you you have to but it it didn't feel sort of trite or or cliched in the way that it did it in a way that a lot of other films often American productions can when they sort of focus on those aspects of Sh- British culture. Sure, it, it touches upon those, but it it doesn't sort of make them the focus almost. Uh,
1: this film brings in an element whereby um, Hugh Grant is interjected into proceedings. So the the story follows that Paddington is fitted up for something that he didn't do, yeah. and it's up to him to prove his innocence. And I'll just key up this little clip that we've got from the film, which is Paddington with the Brown family going to the funfair where he meets Hugh Grant's nefarious character.
3: Are you quite sure you're ready for the workplace, Paddington? It's a tough competitive world out there, and I worry a good-natured little bear might get trampled underfoot.
1: He's right, you know. Mm-hmm. You can't trust anyone. But
3: Aunt
2: Lucy said if we're kind and polite, the world will be right.
1: At least someone's making oh, sense.
2: Sorry, and you're kind, Mr. Brown and you made it to the top. I'm nowhere near the top. I peaked in the middle. Now my hair's gone grey, my belly's popped out, and I've started to creak. Wasn't oh, that man live in the big house on the corner?
0: It's Phoenix Buchanan. Dad, celebrity client.
2: Mm. He's one of our platinum club members, and a very famous actor.
0: Or oh, used to be. Now he just does dog food commercials.
1: Yeah, Hugh Grant doing uh, dog food commercials for (laughs) The Fall from Grace. It's great. Hugh Grant plays um, brilliantly with his character. In actual fact, I think some of that obviously falls into his personal life where he did have a bit of a fall from grace in the late 90s uh, with certain controversies uh, around his personal life as well. But he he sends it up um, and just great to see him having fun on screen. Something that perhaps we saw in Florence Foster Jenkins as well, which was the last film that really comes to mind. I think there, there was a couple of awful rom-coms he did prior to that but it's good to see him moving away from those rom-coms and the what did see sort of man from uh, four weddings uh, which is a great film of its time but he seemed to have just emulated and emulated that sort of yeah, character he sort of
2: fell into the trap of of playing the same character in the various different films that sort of followed after that that didn't quite have the wit or the intelligence that made that film stand out
3: number 1
1: top of the box office as if we didn't know this was mm. going to happen it is Justice League the latest installment in the DC EU. E- is, What's is the E stand for? Extended.
2: I think it was basically they they recognized that the DCCU would perhaps be a bit of a, a tongue twister for people. Okay. Um, and and perhaps trying to distance themselves from, the Marvel. from Marvel and, and and sort of make themselves distinctive and stand out. Mm, does it? <laughs> Not really to be honest. It's it's one where as I've said before, I love superheroes. I read comics, I don't actually read superhero comics, but I watch a lot of the T V shows when I was younger. I like the animated stuff and so I have a predisposition towards liking this stuff. And I wanted to like Justice League more than I was actually able to.
1: You prefer DC stuff to Marvel in terms of its comics? At least books. in terms
2: of the content, the yeah. original sort of source material, yeah. Mm. Um but I think Marvel just get it more right on, on film.
1: So what was wrong with this film for you, Mike?
2: It's a it's a bit of a mess it's sort of there are moments that are good the some of the characters work for me where others quite didn't quite work um tonally it's sort of it shifts and, and doesn't quite manage those tonal shifts as well as i think marvel does where they're able to have say serious moments but then offset it with comedy it felt like dc were trying to do this or warner brothers were trying to do the same with this film getting joss whedon in to do the final edit but it just didn't quite work. So the, by having
1: two directors or two hands in the pot, shall we say, it's mixed things up in a in a particularly poor way. Yeah,
2: I think I think that's definitely fed into it. It's it's also the a little bit of just uh, filmmaking by committee. When you try to please everyone, mm. it just doesn't work as well.
1: Okay. Uh, but fans are going, you know, having this complete blinkers on going, Oh, I love it. Doesn't matter what the critics say.
2: It's one that I I don't want to sort of offend anyone or alienate anyone, but it, I, it's something I see with the DC films. It, it happens quite often or, or has happened with all the previous ones, at least that there are this hardcore dedicated, uh, legion of fans who, who very much view it as against Marvel. Whereas for me, I'm a fan of comic books. I'm a fan of superheroes. Right. It doesn't matter to me as much where, which studio or, or which one they come from. But
1: in, in their eyes, the, with the DC comic adaptations, they can do no wrong. You know, It doesn't yeah. matter what quality of film is on screen and what everyone else thinks. That's what I wanted, obviously. It doesn't yeah. matter what the film is about. You know, that's exactly what I wanted. You know, what I wanted this story. I wanted Batman to be tra- portrayed in that way. I want Superman to be portrayed in that way. I can understand that. I was speaking to someone uh, this week and I said, how did you find this film? And they were like, yeah, lots of action and everything else that went on not much story though it can't have everything i was like but you can have yeah, you, everything and
2: you should want that uh, yeah and
1: it's just that acceptance like oh well i got that part of it and that's fine and i'll, I'll love it for that and that's great you know yeah. work for them and um, from a technical standpoint when there's some issues with facial hair
2: <laughs> yeah it's it's quite bizarre but um henry cavill who
1: plays a ba- uh, superman. superman
2: i mean maybe spoiler it's he's in the trailers so it's really not a spoiler i don't no. think He comes back. He apparently had a beard or a moustache or or, or some sort of facial hair from he was working on another project. right? And so rather than trying to find a workaround for that, giving him the beard in Justice League, Could have given
1: him a mask like Poirot wore in in Murder on the (laughs) Orient Express. Or or
2: waiting until he was able to to shave or something. Yeah. they, uh, They digitally alter his mouth. And so it just gives this strange, unnatural sort of appearance to his his face that, yeah, you, you might think watching it, oh, they couldn't actually get Henry Cavill back or they've done the whole sort of uh, Princess Leia grand...
1: Yeah, I know what you
2: mean. Moffat, Tarkin, whatever. Grand
1: Moffat Tarkin. There you go. Which some people are still defending that that was good CGI. That was not good CGI, I'm afraid. You know, and when they superimposed yeah, not it. not to me. In terms of Justice League, I saw it uh, with a particularly poorly behaved crowd, I have to say. <laughs> they were munching away, talking away, just wouldn't shut up. And that indicates to me that they're not engrossed and involved in the yeah, film. Yeah. I found the film to be really one of those superhero films that perhaps was acceptable 15 years ago when superhero films were first being brought to the fore once again you know with early spider-man and stuff the, the x-men films but we've progressed from then we yeah. you know we we are bringing in more challenging themes we have a more in, intelligent and engaged audience that so we more of a respect for that audience saying they're not just children you know they they need a bit more to yeah. chomp on justice league just played it awfully plain lowest common denominator let's get the gang together and let's defeat evil. Even in the final scenes, you know, this main, the main bad guy is called. Steppenwolf. Born to be wild. <laughs> uh, played
2: by uh, Kieran Hines. Who I did not know until seeing the credits. Cause he is unrecognizable. It's a, uh terrible terrible cgi creation he looks artificial at no point does he feel like a person Person, that's actually there
1: and that's that's a that's a pitfall common pitfall of cgi where things feel weightless and you know don't have that heft behind them i didn't even know it was kieran hines until i looked at the cast list afterwards i looked at the press notes for uh, Justice League, forty-six pages long, explaining the <laughs> whys and wherefores wow. of of the film, and giving everyone plaudits as to how important their role was within the film, and you know why this was one of the most important films. Smacked of desperation for me, if I if I'm honest with you. Okay. I've gone quite
2: negative, and so I do want to say there are some positives for me. Okay, so what are the positives? Ezra Miller as The Flash, I thought was brilliant. He's exactly as The Flash should be.
1: I found him really annoying, Like, but I said this to you uh, outside earlier. I found him a bit like Poochie uh, from <laughs> The Simpsons, that, that really annoying sort of energetic want-to-please sort of character all the time. Which
2: I, I do understand, but ha- having a bit more knowledge of the source material, that kind of is from The Flash, Okay. That's that's his character to a degree, um, and I love Ezra Miller as a performer. So I, I think I just went with him a bit more willingly. And uh, Gal Gadot as Wonder Woman,
1: but isn't her portrayal quite different to Wonder Woman, the Patty Jenkins film that was I, I, really held aloft earlier on this year?
2: I don't think her portrayal is. I think the view of the film towards her is is different. It's she felt more sexualized and uh, really suffered sort of the male gaze, as it and were.
1: And is this a Zack Snyder's fault? This is certainly a trope, the Zack Snyder. Zack if you look Snyder at stuff or... like Sucker Punch, uh, one of his films, which definitely sexualizes the, the the women that are in that yeah. film, doesn't that then go against what Wonder Woman is certainly standing for, which is a strong female character who doesn't need to be sexualized, can do her things on her own terms?
2: Yeah, definitely. I would agree with that. Um, but I wouldn't lay it at the feet of Gal Gadot. I don't think it's at all... To do with her performance. I think that is to do with the direction. Okay. Uh, the 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 shooting of the film. Where I think she still brings the same level of sort of heart and honesty and empowerment to the character, but you can't really do much when she's being shot from behind from a low shot to highlight her ass. If you <laughs> you'll pardon the sort of crude expression. It's that comes more from the director. I think from the fact that it was a woman okay. shooting the original Wonder Woman. Who who doesn't have that sort of male gaze? Male gaze
1: again, yeah. Um, it's it's just, it's just a really sad thing that it's such an easy thing to get right. Seeing as Patty Jenkins has sort of laid the groundwork uh, yeah, for it, absolutely. yeah. Well, there we go. That's the box office top ten. Justice League at the top. There, I don't think it's going to be up there for much longer. If I'm to with you, think so either. next time we roll around doing the top ten, I think it will be significantly down on the yeah, list. Yeah, I think
2: it will still be in there, but it will have dropped quite quite significantly, and
1: and, and rightly so. Now yeah. doubts that whether ben affleck will carry on in his role as batman and then move on to other projects a lot yeah. of people are saying that he is one of the most worst portrayals of batman on screen
2: yeah it's it's a weird one for me because bvs uh batman versus superman bvs managed, dodge yeah he managed to be both the best interpretation of batman we've seen on screen in that he was tortured he was sort of driven, and, and it was being Batman was a compulsion for him, which is very great and, and, and a lot of what we see in the comics, but then also a terrible interpretation of Batman because he killed people. And that's just not Batman. That is the one hard limit that Batman never crosses. He, he, yeah,
1: he, he hurts people, he, he incarcerates them. He, he um... does horrible things at times, but he
2: never crosses that line. Sure. And, and that's what sort of defines the character. And they lost that in, in Batman versus Superman. And in this one, I think they just, they make him, he's, he's trying to do too much. They're trying to have him be too much where Batman should be the, I don't think he should be the driving force behind the team up. Okay. For me, that's, that's not Batman. He should be the one that's implementing and coming up with all the plans because Batman is the smartest man in every room. He is the master tactician. Mm Mm-hmm. Because he doesn't have the strength or the speed or the superpowers to bring to the table. Um, and so, yeah, for me, Ben Affleck, again, it's it's not his fault. I think it's the, the writing. It, it's, it's how they're trying to portray the character rather than him portraying the character. Where I liked his sort of world-weary aspect to it, where he mentions in the film he's been doing this for 20 years. Yeah. And he's beaten, he's tired, he's bruised because he is just a man fighting these gods and monsters. And so I, I liked that aspect of it, but I, I didn't like the sort of shoehorning him in as the leader. Do
1: you know what I found my issue with Justice League overall was the fact that we have four men, yeah. Superman, Batman, Cyborg, and Aquaman, the most boring men I've ever had on screen. <laughs> no charisma whatsoever. And it's like watching four men with... Superman has no charisma about him. He's very no. stoic. He's very serious. So is Batman. Cyborg... There was nothing about him, yeah, really. I didn't really and Aquaman, what did he do?
2: I found his character slightly ridiculous, to be honest, like that he made me laugh out loud on one or two occasions where I suspect I was not supposed to be laughing, but out they were
1: all loud. boring characters, yeah they and that was like painful i needed i needed. That's why The Flash stood out to me and that's why he felt more poochy, if you excuse that term, than he should have been. I yeah. think if there was someone in the middle there to temper that a little bit, because Gal Gadot's character, completely different entity. She felt like she was in a, in a different film at times yeah, yeah. In, in terms of her character. Uh, but there was no other characters that was that middle ground to like bridge the gap between all of them. It was just these four boring guys a a wisecracking person and this woman who was clearly better than everyone else (laughs) in this film anyway that was uh the box office top 10 justice league there at the top we'll be back after these messages hello everyone this is jd from the in session film podcast each week we review the latest from hollywood california well yes brendan we also give top three lists okay yeah thanks again brendan Additionally, you can hear us talk other movie news, trailers, varying movie series, or other interesting film-related topics, and even rants and raves of the week. On top of our main show, every Friday, you can also hear our extra film podcasts. Uh, You can listen to the In Session Film Podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or at InSessionFilm.com. Listen to the In Session Film Podcast every Monday and Friday. Subscribe today and hear me verbally beat JD like a Cherokee drum. No, 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 no. That's not (laughs) how this works, sir uh in session film podcast there very good podcast should you get time to, to listen to those guys brendan and jd are a fantastic gentlemen and they go quite deep and they cover everything not just your latest blockbuster ones like justice league but also some of the side projects as well i think they covered ladybird
2: yeah columbus I, columbus I, I mentioned we mentioned earlier.
1: earlier yep so um well worth uh, listening to those two guys that is the in session film podcast
0: and now it's time for our main feature film
1: and this week we shall be talking about alejandro hodorovsky's santa sangre mike do you want to tell us about santa sangre in a nutshell as if it's possible
2: <laughs> yeah i'll fit it into as much of a nutshell as i am able to um is the 1989 film by as you've said alejandro hodorovsky who is a revered cult writer and director santa sangre specifically Mm -hmm. is about a former circus artist who escapes from a mental hospital to rejoin his armless mother who was the leader of a strange religious cult uh, and is forced to enact brutal murders in her name as he becomes her
1: arms this sounds crazy already to anyone who hasn't seen it and it is it, oh, brilliantly so. Amazingly so. This one took me by surprise. This is a second watch, time watch for me, but I haven't seen it since. I was probably drunk coming back from a pub one night (laughs) uh, late night on channel 4 it just took me back to those well the midnight movie Alejandro Hodorowsky is the person who coined that term of those out there films you know he was the person that made the midnight movie the weird films that people go to the cinema in New York and all those big major cities to go and see something that's completely out there and I think if I saw Santa Sangre with that mindset I would have got exactly what I was after so this uh, uh, Circus Artist sort of follows the life of this boy, yeah, uh, oh, Phoenix. Phoenix, and he is an apprentice. He's learning how to vanish things.
2: Uh, yeah, he is a young magician,
1: young magician, and his father is a sword thrower, uh, a knife thrower, knife thrower. Yeah,
2: uh, and his mother is a trapeze artist. So it's it's the family within the circus. Okay, uh, but then there is also, like I say, his mother is the leader of a strange. Cultish religion.
1: Yeah, it's it's a really bizarre religion. They worship uh, what was a toilet or an ex community, uh, like a public toilet or something, or an ex bath. Yeah, it?
2: Um, and uh, they have a saint, their their own saint, who was a young girl who was raped by two brothers and had her arms cut off, right? But didn't die. Okay, um, and and so in the church that they have, there is a pool in the middle of the Santa sangre of the the title which is holy blood but it, it's not necessarily and and yeah there is the they're, they're, they're all in red robes that was for me quite reminiscent of um sort of Ken Russell's The Devils yes um, and, and other sort of films yeah. like The Wicker Man and and, and films about cults cults yeah. essentially yeah. Um, yeah. and and how religious movements can be kind of cultish when they they don't have that sort of I don't know mainstream element to them or the a bit like
1: DC fans. <laughs> um, yeah, <laughs> but no, you know the the idea of they can do nothing can do any wrong. You know they they worship at this idolatry uh, to such an extent that they're blinkered to to yeah. a world view. And yeah, it's bizarre that there's this. Um, cult that's worshipping at this i think it is like a communal spa or a, a yeah. baths or something yeah. that they've, they've commandeered they've put all this drapery around because of this horrific act that happened to this girl where she had her arms chopped off and now they worship at this fount and it's being threatened by the local mayor or
2: yeah there's a property the developers, developers yeah. who are wanting the land to uh, build some high rises or some sort of apartment complex or something it's not entirely clear
1: and and it's visited by a local priest who tries to actually rationalize their worship of this uh, idol even though it isn't christ or anything to do with christianity yeah. he's trying to protect them in a way well
2: at first he, yes. he sort of appears as a, a sort of mediator yeah mediator, mediator yeah. yeah um to try and sort of calm the because there's uh bulldozers advancing on the the followers of the cult who yeah. are sort of linked arms yeah. sort of trying standing pr- in front of it, it trying yeah. to protect the building with their their bodies um and so the monsignor arrives and sort of goes inside um but upon sort of inspection of it he declares it heresy yeah. and and blasphemy yeah. and and sort of uh, decries the, the church that is there as as a false church.
1: And and we're not going into huge spoilers here. In fact, this probably happens in the first 10, 15 yeah. minutes of the film where we sort of get an idea of Phoenix's life, where his mum is, as we said, the leader of this cult. He's brought up in this family of uh, circus performers. He's learning a trade as well. His father is a bit of a, a weird one. He's an overweight, mustachered. Chap.
2: in a sparkly cowboy outfit
1: as as you'd expect probably in a, in a circus uh it's quite he draws quite the figure and he is uh obviously a knife thrower and part of his act is throwing knives on this scantily clad tattooed woman yeah who he seems to be having some sort of extramarital affair with yeah. and phoenix not being stupid or anything and, and i think that probably plays part of what hodorowski is saying that children aren't you know benign to these things that are going on is very much aware that his family may be being torn apart here because of his father's alcoholism and just general leeriness and yeah. yeah just wanting to you know have sex with people other than his wife and still carry on the family unit and there's lots and lots of contrasts within this film so in the first bit we we see a consummation of love between um phoenix's mum and dad in the circus
2: yeah which phoenix himself sort of spies upon yeah he's he's
1: hiding behind some hay bales and uh he looks over and and he's he sees his mum astride of his father and just as she climaxes on the other side uh, an elephant dies and has all this blood coming out of its gushing uh, out of its trunk, trunk. yeah, yeah. Um,
2: which i've 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 seen sort of and, and for me the the elephant uh, represents the loss of innocence okay. that comes from the transition from childhood to adulthood that could be argued he he has when he sees his parents having sex. You know, it's it's one where seeing that as a child can be, tra- can be quite a traumatic, traumatic. event. Yeah. It's, you know, out of context, sex is quite a violent act. It's, it's quite a bizarre act that if you take away the, the sort of the feelings of pleasure that we have whilst doing it, it's quite ridiculous if you think about it (laughs) is it (laughs) i mean i don't know maybe i'm doing it wrong but um you know the the sort of the strange contortions that people put themselves into and through for sex without that sort of feeling of pleasure it's which you don't understand as a child it's just quite a bizarre thing um and so yeah i think i think that marks uh, loss of innocence for sure. him that is represented by the dying of the elephant
1: now within this first formative years of his life um, and i have to we have to add here that the phoenix the young phoenix who's around about maybe 10 yeah i think so something like that is uh played by uh one of hodorowsky's children yes
2: Adam hodorowsky Ad-
1: brilliantly um Adam hodorowsky um and this goes back to hodorowsky's idea of interjecting himself he a lot of his films are quite uh, autobiographical yeah. in in many sense he puts a lot of his personal life in his a lot of his personal feelings he has a lot of mummy issues if you see some of his other films like the dance of reality um or endless poetry there's there's a lot of issues around uh his, his attachment to his mum well
2: yeah he also seems to um possibly subscribe or put some weight into the sort of freudian analysis mm. which obviously has your mother is your first sort of interpretation yeah. of the opposite sex. And it's it's where your sort of sexual feelings stem for the whole Oedipus relationship and, and things like that, which was very uh, prevalent in, yeah. in Freud's theories.
1: Yeah. And so Phoenix isn't alone in the circus. He has friends or allies, people that... Kind of look after him. There's yeah. a troop of clowns, uh, yeah, and a dwarf called Aladdin. Uh, oh, of course, the dwarf. I forgot about the dwarf. Uh, yeah, Aladdin, and they kind of look after him while his dad's off drinking and his mum's running the the church. Uh, yeah, with
2: has sort of engaged in her religious fanaticism.
1: And there's also a, a young girl who is completely in white face makeup. Yeah,
2: like a she's she's a mime. Yeah. She looks like a mime uh, and is a uh, mute.
1: And her name is Alma and she kind of not i wouldn't say sexual uh feelings but just like a friend or an ally there's or... a
2: there's a young love element to it certainly okay yeah.
1: and she plays sort of almost like his you we've discussed a little bit of this already uh, before we went on there sort of his soul is sort of his yeah, conscience his, his,
2: uh, alma can translate i believe one of the translations of it is soul okay um, but also yeah she she does sort of seem like the the good within him so she does seem to represent that but at the same time, time she could also be a real person
1: yeah well she obviously has a trajectory in the film itself and she goes through some traumatic experiences yeah. you know and uh, there, there's some not very nice scenes where she's uh, has to run away from people yeah. and, and sleep and sleep in the back of a truck etc so it does seem like she's not just an allegory for something else Yeah,
2: um, but that perhaps due to her lack of speech she can be sort of idealized and, and, and sort of be seen as his conscious in that she is one of the few characters that doesn't ask for anything from him. Right. She's just there for him.
1: Okay. But this it's interesting. That character actually, I think, symbolizes a lot of Hodorowsky's idols. Um, you look at people like Marcel Marceau, uh, who Hodorowsky
2: belief he trained under
1: he did yeah, yeah. he trained as a as a mime under uh, one of the most famous uh, mimes ever exactly. the most famous yeah. mime, definitely yeah. um, and he has a lot of love for some of the silent stars as well so like Chaplin Buster Keaton and uh, some of this is obviously played out through that Alma character and it has some form of significance so Phoenix observes something very very traumatic yeah um, in in his youth and uh, then we flash forward uh, to later on in his life and we know now where this this traumatic event has affected him to such an extent he's living in a in a mental institute or,
2: yeah a sanatorium of some kind okay yeah. and
1: amongst the other people that are there with other and mental issues, they've lumped in people with learning difficulties as well. So there are a lot of people who have Down syndrome.
2: Yeah, it, it's one that I think does speak to a practice that used to happen, right? Where okay. where people with sort of um, learning disabilities were sort of lumped in with with the sort of uh, mental issues.
1: And so Phoenix is now probably early twenties, early twenties, I think. Yeah. yeah.
2: Again, played by another son of um, Hodorovsky. <laughs> yeah, he gets Axel the whole family in that time.
1: <laughs> yeah, so Axel Hodorovsky is there. The mm-hmm. cat beautiful beard lovely hair he looks <laughs> slightly like jesus looking little bit jesus he is a good looking chap which i'm, I'm
2: sure is purposeful as yeah. well
1: he is not with it completely well
2: he's he's quite um regressed to an animalistic state, state. when we see him oh, yeah. he's he's naked he, yeah. he he's of, climbing around he's climbing on trees he's he's mm. quite sort of ape like mm. um he eats raw fish rather than prepared food yeah um and yeah he just he seems again
1: quite animalistic and so they take uh, everyone out to the cinema for the night
2: yeah to sort of, they're trying to encourage um, socialisation okay. and uh, of Phoenix, and to try and sort of draw him out. And so he and a number of the uh, patients with Down syndrome are taken to the cinema where they um, are left in the care of uh, another relative of Hodorovsky's. Okay. Uh, I don't actually know this guy's name, unfortunately. Okay,
1: uh, But he, he plays a character who uh, is a bit of a cad, isn't he? He's a, he's a bit of a drug dealer. He's
2: a drug-dealing pimp. Pimp. Which we don't instantly know, but it's quite clearly So sort all these of vulnerable defined. people are
1: being looked after by the streetwise pimp, and the streetwise pimp takes them on this brilliant sequence whereby they're going through like an underpass or like grotty underpass with lots of prostitutes that are touting their wares and he's got this ghetto blaster in his hand and it's playing some brilliant Perez Parado (laughs) Uh, you might know some of his um, sort of Latin stuff like Mambo Number 5 which uh, Lou Bega then butchered uh, in a a later life but it's this brilliant sort of Latin sounds coming out of this ghetto blaster and they're all dancing away everyone in this line is like almost like a conga line going along and it's just this wonderful like seamless sequence going along and uh then they take take drugs uh, at one point which um you were telling me is
2: actual cocaine yeah. given to
1: these people with down syndrome <laughs> yeah. which is just <laughs> shocking if you think about it it is shocking but it, it's so hodorowsky <laughs> yeah it,
2: it, it yeah it lends itself to the strange hazy hallucinatory sort of dreamlike nature of the film
1: yeah, it, it's it's a very surreal film, and this is almost this is meta. Yeah, uh, it,
2: it's one where he definitely um, is inspired by the surrealist sort of painterly and and cinematic movement.
1: He's he's openly talked about that. And uh, so Hodarowski, as a director and as a person, he, he's he's into tarot quite a lot. Did you did you read anything about this? He's a he's a tarot reader. He's, okay, he's, yeah. he's, in, he's he believes in you know revealing of the cards and yeah, telling yeah. of fortunes, and uh, I think predicting someone's life and and how. It, the turn of a card and the spirituality behind that feeds into a lot of his work because a lot of this we spoke about what is real, what isn't real. Yeah. Um, and I think some of it, uh, as a surrealist sort of person, plays into that idea of of the tarot you know unpredictability and and perhaps your life is being foretold you know there's an instance of perhaps uh fatalism about it
2: yeah well i think um sort of analysis like a uh, psychological analysis especially freudian also feeds into that in that it's things that happen to you when you're younger that dictate who you will be when you're older that it's it's Reminiscent of the flipping of a tarot card that Hmm. you saw this when you were younger, so therefore you will act like this in the future.
1: We try not to spoil any more than this, but um, he obviously comes out of this mental institution and then ends up becoming a performance artist of sorts. And I think it's kind of significant to say this much. Is that he then re reunites with his mother?
2: Yeah, who after... is uh, she is armless after a tragic event in the past that we, it looks like is what's responsible for sending him to the institute,
1: and also echoes the idol that she yes. worshipped, which was the armless woman of the cultish church that they all you know all held in, in great esteem, and then Phoenix then becomes the arms of his mother. And uh, they have this act that being touted around the whole of town is wildly yeah. popular by the looks of it. Whereby he has has his nails painted and sits behind her in an almost Shiva like sort of way, yeah, yeah. And, and does does things,
2: uh, uh, yeah. In, they, there's a sort of inappropriateness to the the. At least for me, it was quite uncomfortable. The closeness between them, where he is her arm, so he is almost at times stroking and caressing her, her body, her mother, which yeah. is as her arms is hit her own body, you know, but because
1: it's not her own arms, it it gives it a sort of uncomfortable feeling to it. Absolutely. So the the story goes on and we, we, like I said, don't want to spoil any of that, Uh, but we then have, reoccurring characters from his youth so the the clowns come back in Alma has her own little story in there the as dwarf, well again the dwarf's up at many points um, I think the elephants as well
2: yeah there is uh, possibly a scene later on with, with uh, reminiscent of the elephant dying dying
1: yeah and then where there's a, a very um, strong scene where the elef- there's an elephant that dies and has a big funeral for it and a big procession yeah it, it's
2: yeah there's there's a very processional nature to the film that's quite brilliant like you mentioned the, the conga line. Mm going along um and there's quite often i think it comes from the sort of the circus carnival aspect but there is also yeah the, the, the
1: funeral scene with um, the with the death of the elephant very much feels like a carnival procession going yeah, down the
2: road but with the sort of the darker and more yeah, specter of death sort of behind overtones them. Yeah. with with the sort of yeah the funereal procession yeah which is quite carnival it's in itself at least in this regard definitely um, and uh the The use of music I thought was brilliantly sort of done through that in that quite often it's a marching band yeah. walking behind the characters involved in the action. And so it's it's diegetic music, but it's also scored. yeah. Um, which is, yeah, it just, it all sort of adds up to this really heady sort of strange mix that's just very intoxicating. There's
1: so much going on in this film and I, I, I'm not sure all of it was intentional and I think you can probably pick things up that perhaps Hodorowsky didn't intend but yeah. there's definitely things in there you can look at um, uh, Phoenix's characters watching TV at one point uh, watching the Invisible Man on yes, television which is
2: a film he very much identifies with
1: and uh, starts unwrapping his head of of the Invisible Man's bandages but unfortunately he doesn't disappear He's, yeah his, his head is still there and there's, there's lots of little moments like that and people think that Hodorowsky is quite a chaotic director and a lot of you know what he makes is not necessarily lowbrow, but perhaps the, there is no real intent behind it. I'd, I'd argue vehemently against that. Yeah,
2: very strongly. It's it's I, everything. Not everything, but a lot of it felt very deliberate for mm. me.
1: There's, there's a lot of intelligence behind it. Yeah,
2: it, it draws influences from like as we've stated, sort of surrealism. Mm. Uh, also, uh, some of the early sort of directors like Buñuel, things like that. But also going further back, like uh, Greek theatre for me the sort of the the classic Greek theatre or um, Commedia dell'arte, the sort of Italian Renaissance theatre with the, you know, you think of the comedy and the tragedy masks Mm -hmm. and the sort of the marrying of those two. It, It is a film, or at least this one, I think is, I'm sure more of his films, but I can only speak to this one. It has that sort of comical, tragical sort of elements running deep through the story that, you know, all it takes is a shift in perspective for something to be the comic or tragic.
1: Mm-hmm. And as uh, is this your first Haderovsky film, yes. isn't it? Yeah. Like I said a, minute, a moment ago, people view some of his films because it appeals to that midnight crowd. It's very cultish, in it, ironically in itself. Uh, in this film, um, and they're supposed to be ridiculous films that are purely there to shock and awe people and don't have any greater meaning. But clearly, we've both agreed that today that that's not the case and i implore anyone that has is is vaguely interested in what we've spoken about today in terms of santa Sangre, go and look at uh, endless poetry el topo dance
2: uh, of reality dance of reality it's one i've got queued up to watch next
1: i would i would say if you're and i think you've got to be in a certain maybe a mood for this sort of film i think you've got to be very receptive to it and open to ideas that things that are being played out aren't necessarily what they 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 seem and there's the obviously definite amount of surrealism that goes on. Hodorowsky, I was, I was watching an interview with him and he says people offer him 200 million to go and make a film but he he would gladly take that if he could make a film on his own terms. Yeah, It's very clear that he makes films on his own terms and whether it's a struggle to... To, to make a film and it, he's only made like nine or 10 films yeah, for, for
2: for a career that spanned a fair few decades yeah he's not made many films
1: 50, i think like no, 50 years um he's not yeah hardly made anything you know he famously went to go and remake uh, dune and he had all these artists like mobius there doing all the uh, paintings and storyboards for him. Mean, it was all ready to go, but the fact that the, the the author and the studio was like, it was way too out there. Yeah, we're not going to make it. And I just, I just think, what could have been with Hodorowsky's June? How, how crazy, how mad that would have been rather than just getting the straight story. And even though David Lynch did it in mm-hmm. the end, and he's Who's no
2: not typically known for doing straight, boring stories. No.
1: And I think Lynch definitely put his f- thumbprint all over June and made it a little bit surrealist. But imagine if Hodroski is another level, you think yeah, of yeah. Lynch being held by a lot of people. Lynch is almost like the commercial surrealist. And then you've got, Hodorowsky, who is way out there, <laughs> yeah. and certainly challenges um, filmic conventions. And I, I definitely think that. All props to him for not taking the easy buck, making these big films, and then having his vision compromised. There's definitely no compromise from whatever no, that he, I can see in these films. He is
2: a true artist where he stays true to his vision.
1: And I don't know. think there is, a, I'll, I'll call him an auteur. He is an auteur. Oh, definitely. Um, I don't think there's any other visionary out there that I can compare him to nowadays that, that definitely has that stamp and has that body of work that even though it's not massive definitely stays with you i mean I San watched what two three weeks ago i'm still thinking now just talking about yeah. it now just reinvigorates like i'd actually kind of like really want to re-watch that again i yeah. wouldn't mind watching that again
2: um, but yeah he's he's certainly uh you know we mentioned sort of films where you can tell it's by a certain person and even though i've only seen the one i have the strong sense that you could not watch an alejandro
1: hodorovsky film and not know that it's his mm, yeah definitely definitely not um i, I was of, of uh, very privileged to be able to put on a large screen showing of the dance of reality and my god that was an experience and a half <laughs> just to see how, how strange and how bizarre that was on a on a big screen just lend that i would love to see santa Sangre actually on a on a a big screen i I think that would really give it some heft behind that as well but seeing on a small screen equally as well had that sort of dingy sort of personalized feel about it it's like my thing do you know do you ever get that with films oh oh,
2: entirely like it's um my first piece for the film seekers website was about uh korean korean cinema and how i sort of i i stumbled across these films to a degree Mm. and i you know it was it was quite formative for me becoming a film fan was staying up late at night and finding these weird films on tv and this was back in the day when there were only or at least i only had access to five channels and there wasn't the sort of the wealth of information about films that you can find now you couldn't just go online and read everything you wanted to know about a film you had a brief synopsis sort of in the channel listings or whatever and you had to sort of give it a punt you just had to to sort of go on faith Mm -hmm. um and and i think that's something that it's not necessarily lost but is diminished these days but is is really quite great when you just go with a film you just Mm -hmm. try it and and see if it works for you and there are lots that do you know Absolutely, if you just yeah. go with them yeah. Florida Project mentioned earlier yeah. a, a lot of the problem with people not liking it I think is people not being willing to go with it but that
1: all comes down to conditioning and what people watch I, I I would say to a large degree it's like the people have been conditioned to yeah. to watch films that have a certain formulaic element to it you know a certain way the narrative is told a, begin, a firm beginning middle end no surrealism in that everything has to be explained to the nth degree yeah, to yeah. them I think one of the big things Certainly, for me, was to be able to shirk that off at an early age and be more receptive to those kind of films that you yeah. talk about.
2: And it's also what you're looking for in a film, um, you know. So not just what you've been conditioned to respond to, but if you just want a bit of mindless escapism, you're not going to get that from certain films. And and again, it's it's there are times when that's all I'm looking for from a film. But I don't think that should be all that
1: you watch. No, absolutely not. Any other thoughts on Santa Sangre, Mike?
2: Um, I mean, some of the, the you, you mentioned briefly, but some of the camera work is just bravura. Like the the tracking shots, the sort of, the one shots. Um, it's it's quite an uh, odd film. It's it, There's a real sense of magic realism. Yes. In that it's... You've got the sort of the magical fantastical element from the circus from mm-hmm. the carnival sort of feel of it definitely yeah it's within a city in mexico i'm'm I'm, I'm not sure I couldn't really find anywhere that would tell me what city it's within, but it's it's quite a gritty quite a sort of grimy city um there's there's poverty quite clearly sort of there sure to sort of offset this strange fantastical world that the circus both performers and sort of the the sort of audience are within, um, and they, yeah, I, I just, I found that juxtaposition really fascinating. Yeah.
1: Like the, the rich and the poor and the, the, the working class people as yeah. well. Um, um,
2: but the, the circus itself feels quite sort of working class, mm. even though because they are performers, there's a sort of, strange, fantastical element to it.
1: Definitely, definitely, yeah. Definitely, uh, if you're into magic realism, I, th- I think this is certainly a film that I would put top of my list.
2: Uh, yeah, there was also... Um, I quite liked the sort of uh, blurring of masculine and feminine traits, okay. which you get through... Phoenix being the arms, the arms of, of his mother, mother mm. um which at times made him quite feminine, and the, the, even yeah. the the actions, like the way he moves his arms as his mother becomes more feminine, it was than incredible, when he's wasn't himself. it? It's it's a brilliant performance, especially when you think this is his son. Yeah, it, this is not a trained actor, no. you know. I admittedly, I don't know how much training he's had. He, yeah, yeah. Or how much he'd grown up around the sort of the film sure. sets of his father, but he's not a classically
1: trained actor but as, as a performance least. and or as a performance artist, you could say, actually he could be his own act. Yeah, in reality. yeah definitely. Um Yeah. That was a, a, absolutely brilliant on his part. And just very, very much a mesmerizing performance. Just, you know, as you said, performing as his mother, stroking the hair, stroking the face. I think, thoroughly thoroughly enjoyed this film it makes me want to go back and watch some of hodorovsky's earlier stuff let's give it out stars today why not let's go for different different ratings different okay, yeah, dif- yeah, we, different podcasts I mean, we did
2: immediately start with stars and then sort of migrated away so so, so go for um, it mike for me it would be a i think a four four and a half star film okay and f- I- yeah out out of five it absolutely blew me away
1: okay and i'm so glad that we kind of decided on that this film to watch (laughs) it was a bit
2: on the on the hoof yeah it was a
1: little bit on the hoof but you know it's probably opened up a doorway to a different path of film that perhaps you hadn't considered before definitely
2: uh, yeah as i said he was he was on my list he was on my radar i was aware of him but this has certainly cemented Mm. my desires to go and and catch up with the rest of his filmography.
1: Yeah, definitely the doors to Hodorowsky's world is uh, wide open. Um, And I am
2: fully looking forward to falling through them into the, as you know, through the rabbit hole, as
1: it were. (laughs) And uh, for myself, I'll have to give it a, a four stars as well. There's definitely a lot to take home with you. And as I said, I'm still thinking about it now. So that was our... Main feature for today, uh, Santa Sangre, a 1989 film from Alejandro Jodorowsky. Now, Mike... The quiz is back this week.
2: Mm-hmm, but not, not for me.
1: No. Um, so you're, you're atop of the leaderboards, as you're the <laughs> only person who...
2: Yes, like that doesn't really mean much <laughs> at this point.
1: But you may be jostled from your lofty yeah, position. Yeah. Um, we have an interview uh, with one of the um, UK's leading Steadicam operators, and that Steadicam is a certain type of camera used on large productions and TV and all, all the rest of it, um, whereby the, the camera is balanced, so you don't actually get the upper and down jolty bits that you do perhaps with shaky cam and that so this is all balanced and you get get a nice smooth shot um his name is uh, john fry and he is going to be joining us momentarily and as if by magic, John Fry is in front of me. Thank you for joining us on the Film Seekers podcast this week, John. Yeah, my pleasure, Neil. Nice to see you. So, John, you are one of the premier Steadicam operators in the UK at the moment. That's is so how uh, I'm told, yeah. So told. <laughs> We'd like to know a little bit more about your job as a camera person and what that entails in terms of filmmaking, in particular the commercial side and the independent side of filmmaking that you do and how Steadicam uh, it, it gets involved in that process as well and what the speciality of Steadicam is. So I think where do you want to start? Let's start with what's it like being a camera person? So you go on set with your camera. What prep have you done before you get on set?
3: Well, camera operator and Steadicam operator, we is separate those to start with. So the camera operator sits behind the camera or operates the camera on his shoulder. He will have on a feature film a team of one, two or three assistants. They all do different things. And, and what f- kind of things do they do? Well, there will be a focus puller. He's technically not a camera assistant, but there's a focus puller to so pull the you're focus. Gonna ha- you're going to have to break
1: that one down to a oh. so, f- so, focus puller stands okay. around with uh, a magic wand, I believe. That's that, right, yeah. it,
3: exactly right. Um, it, it, actually, it, it, most of them are stick shaped, so there okay. is a wand element to it. So, okay. there's several basic jobs involved in camera operating. So, you've got to move the camera itself. So, you've got to pan the head. You've got to tilt up and down, mm-hmm. uh, all that sort of stuff. Look in the viewfinder, make sure the composition is correct. Uh, You have to make sure your lens is, is operated properly. So you've got to be in focus. You've got to be exposed properly. Those jobs all fall on a feature film to other people. So you have a focus puller who pulls the focus and he'll have a little remote unit these days that uh he can stand right away from the camera with a monitor or looking at the scene he can judge distances they're very they're very good at that focus pullers are, you know lose a lot of money to uh in pubs to focus pullers when they uh challenge you to guess how far away something is and okay they get out there take measure and you've bought them another beer uh, <laughs> The, um, the other camera assistants have a clapper loader who, in the old days, would load the film into the camera. And okay. obviously that's still the case on, on films that have the budget to shoot film.
1: But So that person, in, in this instance, will be um, swapping over memory cards. Exactly right. Yes, yes, okay. yes.
3: Uh, and he gives those, instead of handing them over to the production guys to, to take to be, the film be developed, he'll give them to the DIT, or data Ingest technician, something wow. uh, who who copies all the files uh, off the memory cards onto the computer, and he does the clapperboard. Okay. okay, which is still useful because we still record separate sound. Although these days cameras return record sound internally, sometimes you need a separate sound recordist to because there's multiple tracks there's multiple actors that'll have lots so that of different will obviously
1: help in the edit to then, then separate all of that exactly yeah. right yeah okay
3: there's also uh, there's various other camera assistants and they all do different jobs when it comes to changing the lenses setting up the map box and all the other accessories that help control light getting mm-hmm. into the lens and then you have the grip department which moves the tripod and push the camera on a dolly, all those sort of things. So you have essentially a team
1: around you... Exactly right, yes. ...that, that do various bits that, you you know, you've only got so many hands that you can use at, at one point, and they will be doing all these other things, such as the focus and moving grips around, etc. And yeah, yeah. literally you're guiding the camera's lens and that's pretty much most of your
3: job. Yeah, and most of a a standard camera operator's job is, is literally controlling the composition of the frame.
1: And then how much of that composition of the frame is influenced by, say, the director of that film? I mean, how much would they tell you, I need to capture this to this? How would you then take the director's vision and apply it to your own work, would you just go, oh yeah, I'll do exactly what you say or would you then
3: put a little bit of artistry on there? It depends who the director is and how well planned the production is. So if so it's Ridley Scott, ask If it's you, Ridley Scott, there'll probably be a storyboard and you will... Literally match your shot to the storyboard. So there's no there's um, no
1: room for any
3: artistic impression. Less, less. But you can because it's okay. been so well thought out beforehand. And you don't mind. You know, you don't mind that as a camera operator because you're being part of that process that is so well thought out, um, and the frame so precisely controlled. Okay, um, where you do get a little bit more chance for uh, artistic expression as Mm -hmm. a camera operator is those things that maybe want to be shot a bit more off the cuff. So, you know, not quite spinal tap, but, you know, anything that involves a a bit more hectic elements of, of the drama um, or where it hasn't been so well thought out. The DOP is concentrating majoritively on lighting and the look of the film and then the camera operator is then left to, to create the perfect frame so, within so that.
1: the DOP being the director of photography. Exactly. They
3: are responsible for the whole look of the film, so the feeling you get when you look at each picture. So they will have ultimate control of, your, of the framing of each shot and how everything is lit. Okay,
1: so uh, let's let's give a little bit of an example here, John, just so our listeners can get it into their heads exactly what the, what the process is in terms of uh, the practicalities or the technicalities that you just talked about so I'm Denny Villeneuve I've got my brand new film coming out it is all about two young girls who go to school the particular scene I want you to film for Denny today is involving uh, two girls having ice creams in a park and it's a sunny day uh, these two girls are running across the park from left to right all I need is a five second shot of that how would you go about capturing that okay well you'd have or a word... what kind of questions would you ask yeah
3: you'd, you'd You'd have a word with the director, photography, and the director themselves to see, firstly, how much movement you want in the shot. You could have a wide, big wide lens, set it static on the tripod, and just have the most beautiful wide shot of them running across the thing, which leaves a lot of empty space for them to run into, which mm. could imply various things about their voyage of discovery. Okay. Or we could have a we could go on a tighter lens, have them closer up in the frame, uh, filling the frame and we track with them so we 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 pan the head of the tripod to follow them as they go across which Takes us into their journey a little bit more. Okay, we could go uh, put the whole setup on a track and dolly. So that is uh, the, a track along the ground, and then the dolly is the the wheeled cart essentially that goes on the top that has the tripod on it. So that we have what's called a tracking shot. A tracking shot. So the camera physically moves with them. Okay. Uh, you could move the track contrary to their movement, which gives another implication. So what? Uh, go from also. right to left. So we we are moving right to left, and they are moving left to right, which then means the the background moves proportionately more inverse to them, which makes it look like they're moving a lot faster. Interesting, um, or reveals a lot more about the background. But so you can there are various ways of doing that, uh, and it all depends on what emotion, what part of the story you're trying to convey. So then,
1: would you go to the director and ask them yes. that question? Yeah, or yeah if if they yeah.
3: hadn't already told you, obviously. Yeah, that's right. And the the director of photography would also have an input on that because it's his style that is you're trying to add to with your workers operating the camera so he might have a particular love of the moving camera so he might want to do low as every shot you know sometimes you see now literally every shot is moving every shot is on a track and dolly and speaking of movement john um let's talk about your speciality which is steady cam operating well that was the next part i was going to say there is you could put the camera on a steady cam. And then follow or precede those two girls running into that frame and through that frame. So we are literally with them as they go through their thing, physically in space, moving with them. And Steadicam allows you to have a much more natural uh, look, uh, a much more natural movement through a scene, um, which would certainly help our emphasis mm-hmm. uh, with those characters as they're as they're running through the park for our listeners who don't know what a steady cam is can you just give a, a couple of lines
1: as to exactly what is a cam? because i'm sure many people have heard of the term
3: but just the cam itself is not a camera the cam supports a camera so the cam essentially is a a body-worn camera stabilizing thing which um Makes you look a bit like an army man with yeah, exactly. some high-tech yes, gear on it's, you. It's the it's the piece of equipment you see running along the touchlines at football matches uh-huh. um, and does all of those beautiful shots that, so, that you can't get on a tripod because it's stuck to one position. So, so
1: literally you become the tripod itself. So you have this camera yeah. strapped to you with all these weights and balances to keep that shot smooth, for example, at, at a football match when you're tracking a ball along the touchline you're
3: not getting that shaky cam element is that is that correct exactly right i, I can best explain it in the words of the the inventor um uh, Garrett who, brown who uh, right. came up with the idea of the steady cam in the in the 70s okay he essentially wanted to create something that moves through and sees the world as a human being can although you don't realize it when you're walking around your brain your optic nerve and your eyes give you a beautiful, beautifully stabilised view of the world. Mm-hmm. Right? When you're walking along, your body's going up and down, but you don't see it. And the Steadicam arm, which supports the weight of the camera and the Steadicam sled, does exactly that. When you're walking up and down the stairs to bed and you've got a, a drink with you, mm-hmm. your, your arm will absorb that movement. Okay? Right. Um, and that's what the Steadicam arm does. So it's like, a, it's
1: like a dampener, essentially. It, exactly right. Yeah, yeah,
3: yeah. yeah. It, it dampens and smooths out your, your inherent instability as a human being. And then coupled to that is the gimbal, which is an almost frictionless multi-axis, like a bearing, a set of bearings, which attaches the arm to the sled. And the sled is a essentially an upright post, On top is the camera, on the bottom is the monitor, so that you can see what you're doing, and your batteries. You need a monitor because to put your eye to the camera would then mean that you are hitting the the camera camera and having an influence on it. So the idea is that the whole thing hangs upright by the bottom being slightly heavier than the top. And because it's all around this frictionless gimbal, it means that you have... Control of the whole center of gravity of the whole thing by the lightest, lightest touch of your fingers on that gimbal. And you can tilt up, you can spin round, you can uh, pan left and right, you can do all of those things by just, you know, three fingers on the gimbal. And this thing could weigh, what, 70 pounds? Right. And you have literally fingertip control of it. So,
1: because of the way that everything is weighted with your Steadicam, you literally have your camera either top or bottom of this pole um, all balanced putting obviously some strain on your body but not as much as perhaps you would normally have if you were just holding it without the strapping on your body
3: yeah having having a camera on your shoulder gives a certain look so Mm. your your save it Brother ryan's and your war films particularly make a lot of use of handheld camera and Mm -hmm. that is where the camera is is sat on your shoulder Mm -hmm. of course that Means all of your movements—walking, running, wibbling about, breathing—even—are translated into the shot, so you can see all of that. Whereas the Steadicam separates you from it. And, and where can our listeners sort of view some iconic Steadicam shots? There's a really good website called Steady Shots. Okay. And literally, it's it's a a database of some of the best Steadicam shots. Ever are, so, are there uh, any
1: that particularly like spring to mind that are perhaps some of your favourite shots that have oh, been used as Steadicam? I, I don't know that you spoke about the
3: inventor Garrett Brown. Garrett his Brown, name is, right. yeah, from Philadelphia in America,
1: and he he obviously used the Steadicam to capture certain shots at a certain time when
3: that technology wasn't available. So he just invented it. So he, exactly right. Yeah, he uh, he made a test reel in the seventies with hmm. his. Uh, running up and down the steps of the Chicago Museum of Art, for example. And uh, within a few months, he was doing that same shot with Sylvester Stallone for Rocky. Oh, the iconic steps up and down. That was literally part of his his show reel to show what the Steadicam could do. A certain guy you may have heard of called Stanley Kubrick also stole that (laughs) reel. (laughs) And he said, this is the most exciting, engrossing and all-encompassing device for storytelling you've ever seen. So immediately he uh, rewrote how he was going to shoot The Shining to incorporate the Steadicam, and and The Shining is is still one of the best examples of Steadicam use ever because. Kubrick with his incredible finesse and and attention to detail of how he shoots absolutely everything uh, and integrates the way of shooting into the story you know you can cover a scene very boringly you know if there's a conversation going on you have three cameras you have a wide shot and two close ups or if you really really think about the motivations of the characters the the Im- importance of each line you can create a whole different feeling with with mm. that for the viewer um, and Kubrick was the master of that, of course. So the, so Garrett Brown, um, uh, actually, last time I spoke to him, I asked him that the the myth is that uh, Kubrick would do upwards of forty, fifty takes on uh, on every shot, you know, and that include the steadicam shots, which of course Garrett Brown's walking around with 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 ninety pounds of equipment on him. Uh, And you couldn't possibly do that for, you know, more than 10 or 20 takes. And he said, yeah, we did. I think the most was 53 takes of something. Wow. And that was regular, okay, to get it absolutely perfect the way, uh, you know, every... And remember, when the Steadicam's on you, Mm -hmm. it it wants to move. It's moving all the time. And, uh, you know, if you've got a particularly long move, every frame of that move, so 24 frames a second for however many seconds... Has got to be perfect, and even more so for Kubrick.
1: And I suppose back in the day of uh, you know, where we didn't have instantaneous playback, where we couldn't see that, you know, you had to make sure that you captured that shot in the moment, hence why so many takes were necessary I've seen you operate steady cam John um, I think it's quite a marvel to do it um, you know it's almost like you have a, a dog on a leash that's always like you said wanting to get away from you all the time and you, um, and obviously I've seen it take its toll on you as well uh, in terms of as you said the, the weight of the equipment it's not an easy job to, to run around with that all day despite the fact you have that weight distributed around your body it's probably uh,
3: the most physical job in film because if
1: you were to, you, you've told me some horror stories if you were to fall down with that uh, equipment on you, there's potential to a potential to to break your back quite quite easily, isn't there?
3: um The possibility is for that, but we we train very hard to make sure that every safety possibility is taken place. So I always have an assistant with me who's got oh. who's literally got hold of me so that I can't get away from him uh, and that I hit my marks. Of course, you know yeah, that's yeah. the main thing. You and the camera have got to yeah. got to get to where you need to be. Now, when you're watching films
1: at home. Um, do you then sit, do you sit back and enjoy it as a piece of entertainment or is there always that temptation to, you know, analyse and go, oh, well, that's a bit of a naff shot and perhaps I could have done that a bit better and where, what was the intent, uh, you know, behind the, the, the DOP there and all the rest of it? What, what, do, you, do, you, do you do that? Are you able to relax when you watch films?
3: Uh, yes, I am. Actually, I, I tend to think of that as a measure of whether the film is working okay on me or not um if i am swept up in the story sure then i don't notice those things you know or uh, you know i'll suddenly realize that that was a beautiful steadicam shot later but if i'm if i'm hooked by the story yeah then everything that you're doing as a filmmaker is designed to create a feeling in the in the audience sure it's there, it there
1: to deliver a narrative yeah, tell a story exactly yeah.
3: exactly and 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 what we're doing especially with steadicam is is helping involve the audience in that story and if if the shot becomes its own thing, you know, if oh, what an amazing shot that is, that means you've broken that connection with the audience okay. for, for, in terms of what's happening with the characters and the story. Sure. Um, so I find if I'm noticing stuff like that, I know that I've become disengaged in the story. So okay. is,
1: is there any examples that you can think of top of your head when you've, you've just seen anything recently, you're like, mm, well, that was a, you know, particularly poor shot, or, you know, perhaps they could have done that a bit better. Um, or, or any films where it's at the opposite, the converse where you, you've seen some excellent uses. Or yeah. A I,
3: I saw, I only saw La La Land recently. Okay. Um, and I, I was pretty blown away by it from a production point of view, um, which tells, Kind of tells two stories, and one is that I noticed the production. You know, I mean, it's just beautiful the way it's shot. The, the steady cam, particularly, is, is incredible. There's so much, yeah,
1: down like the corridors, um, you know, yeah. from
3: from the there's the a shot from the apartment into the water, up over the dancers, uh, yeah. Uh, everything. Yeah, it's a beautifully, beautifully choreographed, you know, immensely complicated to do these shots very well. And, and so I thought, you know, those worked me. Those, works, a great those, example, those yeah. as shots really hooked me into the character. they'd really thought about how those shots, as well as spectacular as they are, you know, flowed for the story and made you mm. made you interested in the characters. There's. So many examples of bad. mean, There's quite a lot of bad study cam out there.
1: We put your name out on the internet yesterday and uh, we asked our readers and our listeners for a couple of questions. And, and we, we do have a few questions. Jason Michael uh, has posted a, a lovely question for you. He's asked regarding some of Kubrick's films here. So I'm, I'm positive everyone has a favourite type of shot. For example, I love the centered close-ups in Silence of the Lambs or in Kubrick's films they're imposing menacing invading and
3: command the viewers attention what is your favorite type of shot john and why that's a very good question um as a steady cam operator i'm always going to stay a steady cam shot, but there's so many ways you can do a, a steady cam shot so we learn about uh you know preceding a character following a character how that you know there's a dozen ways you can go around a corner, which all imply something else about the story or or the point of view you're taking There's some wonderful vehicle shots you know steady cam shots that that walk around and then stay on the vehicles so I, I, I think my favorite sort of shots are those which can almost be watched on their own, like the Atonement Steadicam shot. And that actually brings together all of those disciplines. At some point, we're following the characters. At some point, we're preceding the characters. At some point, we're walking. At some point, we're on a vehicle. In fact, I think there's two different vehicles involved in that one Atonement Steadicam shot. This is the one on the beach where um, James McAvoy is walking up the beach to meet everybody. And, you know, you see horses, you see explosions in the background. This amazing vista, you know, I think mm. they, did, they, they only did two takes of that to get it right Um, but they planned it for weeks something like that that has an incredible level of detail requires an enormous amount of skill from peter robertson the steadicam operator the sort of shots that combine all the disciplines or as many disciplines as you can the the similar one that i can think of
1: at the moment is probably uh the shot from children of men if you recall that that extended one shot i don't know if
3: if it was digitally spliced in the end there was a couple of bits of it yeah there's there's um there is a making of somewhere and it's fascinating because there's it starts off on the steadicam and then it 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 gets onto a a rig that goes around the car and through the car and that's the camera operator i think is sat on top of the car to operate that that Whole rig, and then it comes out, and then it goes back onto the steady cam again. But it's not, there's a couple of there's two or three cuts in there where it comes off the steady cam and onto that very specific and and specially constructed rig. We've got a jokey question here. So, how
1: tall were you before you started
3: steady camming, John? I was, I was seven this- foot six when I started, and I'm about five <laughs> eight now. Um, no, that's, surely you know, that's a benefit, <laughs> uh, yeah, it is absolutely. Um, no, it's a uh, that that's a complete myth, actually, despite wearing all that uh that weight uh on you one of the big jokes about study cam is that you get shorter by doing it because you you know you're wandering around wearing Oh, I don't know, you know, seven or eight stone of kit every day. Uh, whereas in actual fact, it doesn't—that's that, not really true. Um, I've met the Steadicam inventor, Garrett Brown, and he's still as tall as he ever was. He's, and very, he he's a is, very tall he chap. Tall, isn't he? Ch- yeah, yes, you've met him as well. I have met him. Yes. Um, if you train properly, or are trained properly, you practice properly, and you bother to set the vest up properly for you every time, you get into good practices of, of Steadicam operating. It should have no lasting damage on your body in any way
1: i was gonna say it probably saves you an awful lot of money in terms of gym membership as well absolutely it certainly gives keeps you fit yeah <laughs> yeah definitely <laughs> steve connor um has asked what should directors understand about the best way to use steadicam on their shoots oh, that's a really good question um and uh, i'll just preface this steve is uh, is a director um so <laughs> and you two know each other so uh, that's
3: probably why steve has asked this question yeah um i think directors um need to understand how best to tell the story and that that involves in whatever piece of equipment you've got Steadicam specifically was designed to and still does best a human being's point of view being be it a point of view of a character or following a character or or even preceding a character it's more like a person is there within the scene. So sure. um, thinking about it from that point of view, there's a lot of mechanical ways, be it a track and jolly or a, a jib or a crane or one of these new gimbal systems that can do a beautiful job of keeping the camera stable and level, which is great, but there's always a mechanicalness to those shots. Mm-hmm. Steadicam has a, a unique characteristic, and that is making the shots it it. it Shoots are very natural looking like you are a person in well, that scene and you're, that, that you're, helps you're... to involve the audience a hell of a lot more than than a, a mechanical means. Well
1: the fact that you're half a cyborg with this you know machine <laughs> strapped to your body it becomes a part of you doesn't it when you're, you're rather than just plonking it on a tripod and swiveling it left and right. Exactly. Um, yeah, you the, know.
3: and the all the dexterity, finesse and precision that a human being has literally at your fingertips is what you use to control the Steadicam. And, and that really comes across in the shots it, it gives you. And if anyone wanted to know about being a camera person, John, or want, perhaps wanted to learn a bit more about Steadicam, where can they
1: go to find out about this?
3: Always happy to talk to people. But there's um, there are various organisations, like the uh, Association of, of Steadicam Operators in the UK, the ASO, um skill set i think have a bit of information i'm always happy to uh, to talk to you of course uh, i'm at the steadicam man on uh, twitter and instagram so you're, you're, you're quite well known across the uh, social interwebs for your uh, interesting posts
1: because I I've, I follow you on on Instagram. I see some of the photos that you've taken on corporate shoots, commercial shoots, uh, you know, big productions and independents as well. Always taking those sneaky backstage um, sort of uh, photos of you on set, um, which give a little insight because I can see things around you and perhaps people in the background carrying out their jobs. It's always fascinating to follow you on social media. So, yeah, you can follow John at... Uh, the, the steady cam man? Is yeah, it? steady all- with an eye, steady cam. Steady cam man, uh, all one word. Have you got any projects that are coming up at the moment that? are uh, uh, perhaps you know listeners can find out
3: and look at some of your work online oh perhaps yeah we've got a couple of independent films i've been dop on and, and did the steady cam on we've got dead fred and a film called skulls which will be coming out in the next year just finished this week on dave was the new series of red dwarf and i was the behind the scenes cam operator on red dwarf 11 and 12 and the dvd is i think the blu-ray's out now and oh, you, okay. it's, it's actually i was really impressed i got a copy the whole second disc is full of um interviews and some really great behind scenes documentaries quite a lot of which i shot so, okay um, okay and you've really just cool. got
1: back from some exotic place because you go <laughs> you go off to far-flung places all the time to do various uh, shoots um you've just come back from guadeloupe doing some uh, yeah that's shooting. right
3: i had three weeks in the in the caribbean uh with danny john jules while he finished uh death in paradise so
1: danny john jules is the cat from red dwarf that's, that's right most, most people will know him from that's yeah. right
3: and he also does a, a a series called the the easy riders um and it's a sort of travel motorbike show Um, So we thought this year we'd go out and film him, and that should be out uh, February or March next year, I believe. Oh, in
1: 2018. Oh, brilliant. Well, thank you very much, John, for joining us today. Um, We're not going to let you off scot-free, though. (gasps) Uh, We have our quiz, which we will pose to every single uh, guest on our show. I know. Don't be too scared. Uh, We'll lull you in with a bit of our music. So... Oh, I feel more relaxed already. Yeah, there we are. It's our quiz music. It's there to just chill you out. Have a sip of your squash while uh, we dig out the questions. Now, the way the quiz works is we'll pose you ten questions. Right. Okay. You'll get three points for each question that we pose to you. Okay. You will then have a bonus question on your third, sixth, and ninth question. Okay? Okay. And those bonus questions are worth six points. Calculator standing by. I've got it. It's out of 39 in total. Okay? Okay. Um, but you get to pick your bonus round. So we have got a choice of today, Kings and Queens or Mamma Mia. Blimey. I think I go for Kings and Queens. Kings and Queens it is, John. So are you ready for the Film Seekers quiz?
3: I'm as ready as I'll ever be, Neil. Give it to me.
1: Okay. The
0: Film Seekers.com quiz.
3: Number one.
1: Who were in search of One-Eyed Willie's treasure in the 1985 Richard Donner film? The Goonies were. It was The Goonies. There are three points for you, John. Well done. I'm going to have to get the calculator out in a moment. (laughs) Number two. Michael Cimbello's Maniac was nominated for an Oscar for the best original song in 1984. Which film did it feature in? Well, you know the song, don't you? Yeah. She is a maniac. Don't know the film. You don't know the film, you're no. gonna give up on that one. Yeah. Okay, so that film was Flashdance, of, oh, of course. course it, was. it has all the things, so we'll give you the incorrect horn on that one. That's a, that's a, that's a disappointing <laughs> horn is. there. Uh, so here's your first bonus question, first of three. Number three uh, on Kings and Queens. So John Goodman played a king in an early 90s comedy alongside Macaulay Culkin. Who? It's a good one. It is a good one, isn't it? I think you know it as well, John. Yeah. We perhaps even watched it together at some (laughs) point. King Ralph. It is King Ralph. Well done. Shall we give you a a ding? There we are. It makes it all worthwhile. (laughs) It does make it all worthwhile. (laughs) Six points. You got your first bonus question right. Back to the normal questions. Um, We are going with famous quotes. Okay. It depends how good you are with your famous quote. So these are two characters talking to each other. So Adam says, What are your qualifications? And this person replies, Ah, well, I attended Juilliard. I'm a graduate of Harvard Business School and I travel quite extensively. I lived through the Black Plague and had a pretty good time during that. I've seen The Exorcist about 167 times and it keeps getting funnier every single time I see it, not to mention the fact that you're talking to a dead guy. Now, what do you think? You think I'm qualified?
3: That's my best acting. I'm no, never going to really be an good. actor. Um, seen The Exorcist 167 times. So that's probably Mark Kermode. No, uh... <laughs> um, yeah it's one of those that's very memorable but can't quite bring it to mind no you're going to give up no, on this I one
1: it. okay so number four was Beetlejuice oh, of course it was damn of course it was Beetlejuice I could see <laughs> Michael Keaton in my head <laughs> it was my excellent acting of yeah, course it was, it was. Um, we'll give you the incorrect horn for that one sorry John <laughs> Yeah, I've failed. Had the
3: incorrect one so
1: <laughs> Number five, behave. Uh, in which year did the following films get a U.S. cinematic release? I need the exact year. There's no head, There's no headroom on this one at all. This is okay, be hard. so these three films: Chinatown, The Texas Chainsaw Massacre, and Young Frankenstein. Which year did all three of those all three, three come the same out? year? Same year? U.S. Oh, cinematic gosh.
3: release. So, Chinatown, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, and Young Frankenstein—that's the uh, Mel Brooks film. Yeah, with Gene Wilder, endlessly quotable. Yeah, 1973. One year. You're joking. Out. <laughs> <laughs> I'm quite impressed. I I'm was so close. <laughs> you were very close. 1974.
1: Incorrect. Oh. <laughs> Disappointing. Uh, so that was uh, number five, incorrect. Number six. So back to your bonus questions, John. Your second of three bonus questions on kings and queens. In the spiritual follow-up to Interview with a Vampire, late pop star Aaliyah played Queen Akasha. What was the film called? God, I so, loved Interview with a Vampire. So this was a sequel, and I, it went under the radar. Um, yeah, and I did watch it.
3: It was okay. Uh, it's been a
1: while, though. But uh, Aaliyah's brilliant in it, yeah, yeah, so.
3: yeah, Interview uh, with the vampire. So it's... Um... Yeah, she was Queen Akasha, played by Aaliyah. What was the name of the film? No, nope, don't nope. Know. Okay,
1: so... Uh, that was Queen of the Damned. Ah,
3: oh, yeah, I did. Queen I of heard the Damned. I've heard of it, but you... I don't
1: think I've seen it. No. Uh, you should do it. It's, an, it's actually an okay film, considering it stars a pop star, and she's pretty good in it. Um, so, number seven. In which film did
3: Forrest Whitaker make his debut? Oh, that's a good question. Um, Forrest Whitaker, wow. He's now been in lots of films, but not for so long. Hmm. Ah, uh, there's that... About the perspective, uh, that I can't remember the name of viewpoint, something like that. That's no, he's definitely famous before then.
1: Don't know. Okay, so number seven, uh, you've given up on. We'll give you the incorrect horn. It is Fast Times at Ridgemont High, which had loads and loads of other people in it, including Sean Penn as well in this uh, first uh, escapade onto celluloid. Uh, so, number eight. Nightmare on Elm Street entries 3, 4 and 5 have the word dream in the subtitle. Right.
3: Name any one of them. Sorry, give me that again.
1: So, Nightmare on Elm Street entries 3, 4 and 5 into the franchise have have the word dream in the subtitle. So it's called A Nightmare on Elm Street 3 something something something, or has dream in it somewhere. Can you name any of the three? Freddy's dream. (laughs) Freddy's dream dream come true. Uh, I I dreamed a dream. (laughs) I dreamed a dream. (laughs) I I I had a dream. I had a dream, um, and Freddy came, and uh, it became a nightmare. Um, You could have had... Number three was called the Dream Warriors. Right. Uh, Number four was the Dream Master. And number five was when Freddy had uh, a baby, and it was the Dream Child. (laughs) um so uh that was uh your number eight you question i feel no shame in not having those <laughs> they were all right films <laughs> okay uh, and your final uh kings and queens bonus round so this is your six pointer number nine i think you're going to get this straight off the bat uh knowing you uh the band queens don't stop me now features in a pivotal bar fight scene in which film about zombies sean of the dead
3: correct six I points thought you, i thought you were going to ask me what what film they they did the score of um, which has been a couple.
1: Well, they've done Flash Gordon. They did um, part of that, didn't yeah. they? Um, um, Highlander. Highlander. Oh, God. You're, 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 da- you're, well. you're, d- you're down with your yeah, queen. Several, yeah. I should have been a bit more harsh with these I questions, the knowing that you were coming in. Um, but well done. Um, that's six points to you, John. You've clawed back some, <laughs> some some points that have gone under the radar here. But it's, it's, a, it's a tough quiz. I'll give you that much. And your final question for today. Uh, number 10. Whose philosophy is the following? Life moves pretty fast. If you don't stop and look around once in a while, you could miss it. Pretty famous. <sighs> yeah. He is of our era, I have to say. Is he? He is very much so. Do you want me to say it again? Yeah. Go on. L- Life moves pretty fast. If you don't stop and look around once in a while, you could miss it. No, I don't know. Okay, you get the incorrect horn, John. <laughs> It is Ferris Bueller from Ferris Bueller's Day yeah, What do
3: you mean? Off. What do you mean? He's, he's like four. He's like at least ten or fifteen years old. No, I don't us. know how old you are, John. So um, there we go.
1: Exactly <laughs> that is the quiz over, John. Uh, do you want to know your final much tally? Younger than I
3: sound.
1: <laughs> um, your final score is. I'm in second place overall. You are in second place overall <laughs> by, by default. Yeah, um, yeah. yeah. You scored 15, which is actually okay out of. Thirty-nine. I think it was. You got two bonus questions right, which helped uh, get your six points in there. Yeah, you go on to our leaderboard number two uh,
3: <laughs> on our hot wall. I'm everyone sh- do worse. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure it will be populated. by... I want that packet of biscuits. Second prize
1: <laughs> by more people soon. Um, do you have any films that you think are worth checking out from from your perspective at the moment? Not you know as a not not as a cameraman, just as a regular punter. Is there anything that you've seen recently? Anything you're looking forward to that um, maybe our listeners might want to check out?
3: Um, uh, yeah, I I actually enjoyed Thor Ragnarok um, more than I thought it was. I, it was different to the others. I really enjoyed Ken Branner's sort of take on it. But this one is, uh, it's definitely got the sense of the Australian humour in it. And, and that was. R- New, really Zealand, r- New Zealand. Oh, sorry, New, New Zealand. Sorry, New Zealand. Yeah, don't yeah. get them confused. They oh, hate that. Goodness. Yeah, I don't want a Kiwi hate crowd on my doorstep. <laughs> no, you do I not. not. I just love the idea of the, of, of the Kiwi hate crowd now. Yeah, no, I really enjoyed Ragnarok. I, I, I would quite like to see Murder on the Orient Express just because it's Kent Branagh again. Do you have any reservations um, or heard any feedback about Murder on the Orient Express? Uh, only from a technical point of view. Okay. Um, so I gather the, the there's some instances where the the green screening, you know, every time they look out of a window, generally speaking, it's green screen. Because they're shooting on, you know, a big format film and then 65mm film shot on, coupled with anamorphic lenses... Uh, which, for those of you who don't know, um, a standard lens has a flat front element. So So anamorphic is is almost like a fisheye effect, is it? Inverse Uh, fisheye? It is... No, the it, it, rather than the lens being concave or convex, it's actually curved at the sides. Only. Oh, a bit like a
1: bit like a, one of these new mobile phones that has the glass around the side, not a at little all. bit. Yeah, well, yeah I mean, actually,
3: there. Yes, okay. it is like that. Yeah. So, anamorphic lens curves, so it, okay. it bends the edges of the picture. Right. Um, and because that creates various optical distortion and and uh, you know elements that that can disrupt the sort of the, the actual transmission light passes through the lens. Uh, apparently that's that looks like it's it's interfered with the green screen so process. the green screen
1: ideally you should be shooting on a, a flattish lens then well
3: it, it shouldn't matter but in this case because that coupled with the ultra high resolution you know big film it seems to it, from from some accounts I've read, I haven't seen it myself. Have account as uh, created some some odd uh, mismatches with the with the uh, <laughs> the green screening process. So it doesn't look quite as convincing as it should do.
1: Okay, is there anything in the Oscar season that you've heard about that uh, perhaps maybe you, you might be interested? in? I know you you caught up with uh, obviously you caught up with La La Land from last year. Um, I know there's the new Spielberg film, The Post, which is coming out Ooh, with Mel Street yes, and, and Tom Hanks. Uh, it's got a very very striking poster. Uh, I know there's um, Jessica Chastain and Idris. Elba, both beautiful people, are going to be in the film called Molly's Game that's coming out in December.
3: I met Idris Elba a couple of months ago, actually. Oh, look at you name dropping! Oh, well. How was he? He uh, was very nice. He's just like he is in. It's just like he's in Luther, actually. Um, <laughs> in, in real life, very, very understated and, and quiet. He was very nice.
1: You didn't. You didn't use his private toilet like you did when you were because John has <laughs> oh, shot... <laughs> uh, a music video. But you don't know which one. The do oh, it's a documentary actually. Was with, it a documentary? Yeah, a
3: documentary with Kanye West many years ago. Um, I think every Steadicam operator in the UK working at the time uh, worked on that, on this and th- on this documentary, was- and it ended up. I'm not sure whether it even ended up being released on the television. Um,
1: okay, yeah. and he had a particular thing on set that no one else was supposed to use. Do you want to ex- explain this anecdote, John? Well,
3: nobody said this to me. You know, so we've gone in, we've set up, we've got everything ready and he's in there doing his thing in his his studio um, and, you know, I really needed the toilet. And well, what do you do? <laughs> you, know, you look around the place and there's one. Oh, so I just nipped in, you know, had a way and came out again. And uh, as I left... I noticed, you know, there's quite a lot of people in the room looking at me. Not Kanye, thankfully. He'd not noticed. Um, I went back out and got, you know, got on with setting up the steady cam. And uh, I said, what's what's going on? I said, you just used Kanye's private car seat. Oh,
1: you did literally sit on his oh, throne. Wow. I did. Yeah, I know. And oh,
3: God, that's... His use only. Oh, yeah bow to Could the have been frame. struck off if he'd noticed that yeah that's that's particularly well.
1: well John thank you for joining us today on the Film Seekers podcast your, your time has been invaluable for us and very informative so oh, it's
3: my absolute pleasure Neil thank you very much for I, I, I hope we catch up soon thank you bonjour hey everyone I'm Jason Michael and I'm Lee Brady and we're the Atlantic Screen Connection
1: podcast We're a podcast that looks to analyze what makes films great with a warm atmosphere and a good laugh. New releases, retrospectives, and absolute classics all reassessed and reviewed. You can find the
2: Atlantic Screen Connection podcast on SoundCloud, iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher Radio. And if you're looking for a more direct approach, you can find us on Twitter. Just look for Jason Michael at Atlantic SC and Lee Brady at Big Pick Reviews. Welcome to the Atlantic Screen Connection podcast. Let the games begin
1: couple of chaps there that we quite like jason and lee with their atlantic screen connection podcast far more intelligent podcast than the one we're doing <laughs> at the moment yeah uh, they go deep and they go super super intelligent on their films if you love uh, film analysis and film criticism they are the two guys that you want to be listening to um, speaking of which, great interview with uh, John there, uh, Steadicam operator. Yeah,
2: it's it's not an area I know too much about, and so I definitely feel like I've I've learned some
1: some stuff. Wow, well, in the coming weeks and months that we go ahead with the Film Seekers podcast, I'm going to be introducing a few other elements from the film industry. Maybe give us a bit of a rounded idea of what they actually do, because yeah. we throw around cameraman, camera person, should I say, um, editors, uh, directors, but what do they actually do? And the idea behind interviewing all these people is perhaps give you a bit of an understanding as to what goes on set. It's not all glitz and glamour.
2: Well, no, it's also, um, film is a very collaborative medium. And so I think we are often including myself guilty of perhaps giving more weight to certain people than others. When everyone involved has some sort of in creates the, the end product.
1: Like you said, you got to have all the ingredients to make a good mix. Um, if not, the the film might end up being a bit of a damp squib as uh, we saw in some of the box office films yeah. this week. We have a competition, Mike. Competitions are back. Woo. Along with the quiz, we have yeah. competitions. Now, this is your chance as listeners to this podcast, if you made it this far, um, <laughs> to win something from... Not necessarily us, it's from Peccadillo Pictures, and they have given us two DVDs of their latest release, which is now our Tom of Finland. What do you know about Tom of Finland, Mike?
2: Um, it's a semi autobiographical tale of an uh, artist who um, revolutionized uh, gay arts of a time because uh, he would draw very uh, eroticized depictions of muscular men in leather and butch outfits he would subvert the sort of expectations say of i know policemen were featured in some mm. and and sort of it's that changing of of what was acceptable and okay to sort of be eroticized in in terms of of gay men
1: yeah he's, he he fetishized fetishized the leaders of authority, so people in army uniform, and like I like said, people in uh, police uniforms—you know, quite macho sort of
2: figures—very
1: much so. And we, we, the thing that comes to mind immediately is the uh, village people, which you,
2: it, that had an effect. Yeah, I, I know.
1: definitely think that Tom of Finland had a direct effect on the village people's sort of attire. Yeah, yeah, uh, and obviously their integration into as part of the gay community of the time. So this follows the story of Tuka like Sorry, Finland. <laughs> and um, his growing up, basically, is, he was a soldier in World War II. Yeah. I had some experiences there, um, not necessarily just sexual, but some traumatic experiences as well. And it's played by Pekka Strang in the lead role. And how he wasn't accepted within the army and how he struggled with life afterwards, it then follows, it's, it's an autobiographical film, so yeah. where you have his trials and tribulations of trying to fall in love um trying to make connections with other people across the gay community and then finding his outlet through putting pen to paper and some of his drawings reminded me of beryl cook's work where we have the, the the two two larger ladies sort of like very rounded exaggerated sort of Figures, Yeah, these are a bit more sort of finessed a little bit, but you definitely have the, the large muscular arms that have, you yeah. know, bloated out, exaggerated pec pectoral muscles and just playing into that fantasy of having these very butch commanding men in charge, dominating, and it also has that sort of S&M sort of vibe to yeah, it. Yeah. So Tom and Finland is out on DVD now through Peccadillo Pictures. Uh, and you can win a copy of this great film um, by just simply emailing us hello at filmseekers.com you can also Uh,
2: tweet us at filmseekers and also get in contact with us through the facebook group uh, facebook slash filmseekers
1: so the competition is open to everyone that lives in the uk and northern ireland and we will put the closing date for this competition as being the 27th of November so if you can get your entries in to us before then we'll announce the winners on the website and on our next podcast as well so great opportunity there to get a great film for free and now it's time for our home and video streaming recommendations so something that you can go and seek out for yourself uh, you can uh, take one of our advices on one of the many streaming services that are out there the ones that we usually cover are Netflix, Amazon Prime and iPlayer for myself for this month Netflix UK has the brilliant Steve Jobs directed by Danny Boyle and Michael Fassbender plays the lead role of this very iconic uh, character person um, (laughs) of the technology world who uh, passed away sadly a few years ago very divisive character as well not always the nice man in the turtleneck black top uh that we we always thought he might be the seth rogan's in this film as well kate winslet plays a large part steve jobs is now available for you to watch on netflix uk
2: mike uh yes yeah, so my uh netflix recommendation would be uh 1922 which is an adaptation of a stephen king uh short story i think not a novel in this case uh but stars thomas jane uh, and is set, as unsurprisingly, in the year 1922, so Depression era, and concerns a uh, family on a farm, and the drastic uh, decision taken by the father that has uh, long-ranging ramifications for the son.
1: Okay, involved. this is a Netflix original, isn't it? Yes, it is. So there's a lot of, an awful lot of Netflix original content out there. So 1922 is definitely one to watch. Yeah, yeah. It's all, it's, it should be on your radar. Okay. Amazon Prime now. Um, I have spotted, and we gave away DVDs for this uh, a couple of podcasts ago, and uh, you can now watch A Man Called Ove on there, which is a Swedish film about a bit of a Victor Meldrew type who um, lost his wife, tries to end his life, and just has to get along with the modern world and doesn't really want to involve himself. It's based on the book. Um, It has Rolf Laskard in lead role, and I think he does a brilliant job. I really, really love this film. It caught me a little bit by surprise. Um, They're remaking A Man Called Ove in the English Language, would you believe? Yes, no, I have actually heard about this. Yeah, which maybe um, we might get a couple of great people like Brian Cranston and Kevin Hart in, in those roles as <laughs> what we're referring to here is a, is a film that's being remade at the moment that we myself and Mike really, really love called um, Intouchables, Untouchables, Untouchables. Yeah. Um, a French film with Omar Sy and Francois Cluzet uh, in the lead roles. A great film that doesn't need to be touched at all. No, it should have remained
2: untouched, definitely. <laughs>
1: and it's, being re- it's already been remade uh, with Nicole Kidman, I think as well as one of the characters. In the English language for people, we just can't read subtitles. Um lazy people. <laughs> lazy people. <laughs> so a man called Love is on Amazon Prime UK. Uh, well, well worth a watch And Mike, your recommendation for Amazon Prime?
2: Yeah, so it's not actually free on uh, Prime, but oh, you, darn. you can rent it for just uh, 99p, which is a bargain, is Prevenge. Oh, yes. So the Alice Lowe written, directed, starring uh, horror film from earlier on in the year, uh, she stars as a pregnant woman who uh, starts to believe that her unborn fetus is uh, speaking to her or communicating with her, and, and it starts to affect... Her, her
1: actions and and um, all the more amazing because alice lowe was actually pregnant at the yeah, time i filming. believe like
2: six or seven months pregnant when she filmed it it was like a 21 day shoot or something like that so just super impressive that she was able to do this
1: yeah a brilliant film i, I saw it at london Film festival last year um yeah great great recommendation that's prevenge available to rent through amazon yeah Also, BBC iPlayer, uh, lots and lots of content on there, but I'll give you a bit of a heads-up on one that's got quite a few days to go. Andrei Zagnyasyev, the Russian director, um, he's known for a film called Leviathan, which won a few awards, um, and it's about a coastal town where the houses are being demolished, and it's about someone trying to save their house from this dictator of a mayor who's trying to claim back all these houses, and so they fight to keep these houses there in this idyllic town in russia and it just shows another part of russia that perhaps you didn't really consider before you know obviously there's more than that moscow and and red square red square and 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 everything yeah yeah. there there are communities and people that live on the outskirts and this very much plays into this slightly politicized obviously with the destruction of the coastal towns and everything else you can read it on lots of different levels won lots of awards it's a brilliant brilliantly powerful film he had a film this year at doing the festival circuit called loveless which uh, uh i think is a really really powerful film i got to see that a few weeks ago and i i would implore all of you to to see that at some point when it finally comes to uk cinemas which i think is early next year but uh, Leviathan's on there on the BBC iPlayer for you to watch over the next course of 25 days and if you have any recommendations why not tell us what you've seen recently and, and let us seek out some films and let's talk about them and send us an email to hello at film seekers or tweet us and, and get involved.
2: Yeah, as as we proved earlier, you know, with the Spirit Awards, we're not up on every film that we necessarily should be. And so if, if you're aware of a film that you've heard us speaking and you think we would like, we'd love to hear a recommendation from you or you just want to talk about some of the films that you've seen that we've also seen, you know, it's part of the reason of this podcast is it's great to have discussions Absolutely, about yeah, with, with people who are similarly similarly interested so we would love to have that from you
1: yeah definitely and if you're not so much into your films and feel a little bit reluctant just send us a message we can perhaps point you in the direction or maybe you can point us in the direction of some things that we've we've spoken about today it is all about that interaction and there are numerous ways that we've spoken about through Twitter Facebook even Instagram if you want to enter your <laughs> photos you can, you can get involved with us and we just want to say thank you so much to everyone Who's been involved over the last four podcasts? We're now on to number five here. just want to say thank you so much for listening it just even just if you haven't made it to the end uh, <laughs> you're probably not going to hear this either <laughs> thank you so much for your support it means the world to myself and mike obviously yeah. yeah we have so many silent listeners i've been out i don't know if some of you might may not know but i'm i, I dj at weekends as well i had a few people that have come up to me oh you do the, the such and such podcast i'm like yeah i do and like <laughs> that's great that you listen and i just had a couple of friends as well that have come up yeah. to me and said Oh, I actually listen to your podcast. I think, you know, it's really, really good. I just want to say thank you so much. Even if you don't interact with us, it's great that the fact that you're listening. And, and by listening, you are supporting us yeah. as well. As usual, thank you to Bo from Big Numb for the music that we always use. It's from the album from Monkey Came Man from Man Came Me. And that's available from all good MP3 sites. Next time, Michael, what are we talking about
2: uh, we will be talking about A Christmas Tale.
1: A Christmas Tale. So just before Christmas, our next podcast should come out in the next two weeks. We're going to be going a little bit left of centre as we have been. We're not going to be chasing your Scrooge or your Gremlins or your It's a Wonderful Life. The films everyone sees at Christmas and has already talked to death. Pretty much, we're going to be talking about some films that mean a lot to other people in non-English speaking countries. So, Christmas Tale is a French film starring yeah. uh, Matthew almerich and Catherine Deneuve. So, you will know Matthew almerich from A Question of Sports. Sorry, I mean uh, Quantum of Solace, <laughs> uh, the James Bond film uh, where he played the bad guy. I believe. Yes, Catherine Deneuve, obviously you, Belle de Jour.
2: Yeah, you should know from so many films, so
1: many films, and this, from what we understand is quite revered in its home country of France yeah
2: it's, it's sort of It's a French, you know, where it's a wonderful life is in English language countries, sort of held up to that high regard is seen as a quintessential Christmas film. A Christmas tale in France is that.
1: And uh, it came out 2008, so not too long ago, but it seems to have embedded itself in in French culture. I'm sure we'll see some uh, smoking scenes in that one (laughs) as we spoke about that one earlier. And also we'll be touching upon Ingmar Bergman's Fanny and Alexander Now, this was originally filmed as a meant to be a TV sort of series uh, split into four parts. It goes just over the five hour mark, so it's quite lengthy. Mm -hmm. But then someone decided to make a film edit of it, which is three hours long. We'll be endeavouring to watch one of the two for the next podcast. And this is held aloft once again by Ingmar's peers and that country as one of the quintessential sort of Christmas films I'm intrigued as to see how that works in terms of Fanny Alexander because I'm aware of the film but I just wasn't aware that there was a Christmas element to Hmm. it yeah yeah um so very very much looking forward to talking about Fanny Fanny and Alexander and a Christmas tale for our next podcast yeah we're going to end on our last line, as per usual. Um, not going to be as creepy as when we quoted uh, <laughs> Kevin Spacey a few weeks ago. I hope that this person doesn't come up in any lists by the time we do well, our... You just can't tell you these days, unfortunately. You can't tell, can you? And it comes from uh, a Danny Boyle film. We spoke about Danny Boyle a minute ago with Steve, Steve Jobs. Jobs' film. This comes from one of his first films around the train spotting sort of era. And it's Shallow Grave. And this is spoken by the character David Stevens, who is played by Christopher Eccleston, who you may know as one of the Doctors or the iterations of Doctors, Doctor Who. This character, David Stevens, uh, spoke these final lines in Shallow Grave. And Shallow Grave is a film about uh, three people living in a flat in Edinburgh who then have to bury a dead body without getting caught for it so they can take a load of money. Great film. Fantastic. So the final line is, oh yes, I believe in friends. I believe we need them. But if one day you find that you can't just trust them anymore, then what? What then? Thank you for listening and goodbye.
2: Bye-bye.
0: This episode has ended, but your film journey doesn't have to. Head over to FilmSeekers.com where you'll find more reviews, ideas and news. We're also on Twitter and Facebook. Why not connect with us and let us be part of your film-seeking adventure?